You are listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Okay, welcome everybody. Thanks for coming uh, to this um, book launch and uh, seminar slash conversation about transportation beyond oil policy choices for a multimodal future. Um, this is a book launch. The book is uh, on the back table and it's available for purchase uh, uh, after the after the event. We don't have any any royalty from it, so it's uh, you're getting it at the at the rock bottom price. Um, I'm David Burwell. I run uh, the Energy and Climate Program here at Carnegie. For those who don't know, we kind of focus on uh, on the management of fossil fuels, both on the demand side and uh, and the supply side. On the supply side, trying to make sure that uh, uh, fossil fuels are managed efficiently, uh, used sparingly, and that we use uh, the fuels that have the lowest carbon content first. Uh, and the ones that have more, hopefully never. Uh, on the demand side, we focus primarily on on, tr on oil, and within that sector, uh, in the transportation, which represents 70% of uh, oil consumption in the United States, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, is the main consumer. So we focus on transportation policy, demand side uh, strategies, as well as technology for reducing uh, Oil in the oil consumption in the transportation sector. Um, it's for this reason that we are very pleased to be the host today uh, of this launch by uh, uh, of, uh, of this book, which is we're very fortunate to have one of the co-editors with us today, Billy Fields from Texas State University, uh, who was also. Um, in a former life, uh, the research director at the Rails to Trails Conservancy, which I'm sure you all know is one of the most influential and effective uh, non-governmental organizations in Washington. Uh, has nothing to do with my previous connection to the organization. Uh, so I think it could never be more timely to have uh, a book like this to be presented. I remember you know, 15 years ago, it was transportation doctrine uh, that Vehicle miles traveled was uh, at about three trillion uh, miles per year, and it was going to increase at about a rate of about one point six percent per year indefinitely. I remember the Ashto's uh, estimate that somewhere at twenty fifty uh, we were going to be at about five to seven trillion vehicle miles traveled, and we had to build an infrastructure uh, to accommodate that. Well, uh, it's still below three trillion miles per uh, vehicle miles traveled now. Five years, uh, uh, ten years later, so uh, that hasn't happened. So the question is, why uh, has this behavior change uh, occurred, and how can it be accelerated? Other statistics, which uh, you may be familiar with, is that the rate of licenses for adults is dropping. It's dropped from kind of the mid-90s, uh, just 15 or 20 years ago to the low 80s now. Uh, drivers between 16 and 24 have an average uh, license registrations of 67%. 16-year-olds, uh, uh, 20 years ago, Joanne probably could remember this, you know, the, the idea was that Detroit uh, said, how many, 16, how many cars do we, new cars do we have to sell next, we're going to sell next year? Everybody, who, the number of, of, of teenagers turning 16 was the number of new cars they were going to sell. 
uh, assuming that 100% would get their licenses. Well, in 2011, 25% of 16-year-olds got their licenses. So there's obviously something really uh, changing, uh, uh, and we need to explore that. Oil consumption uh, in the United States has dropped from 21 million barrels per day in 2000 to just under 19 million dollar barrels per day now. Uh, it, uh, we used to, in 2000, we can, uh, 60 percent of the oil we consumed was imported. Now it's less than 45 percent. Uh, and I can go on and on, but the point is that there's something really happening uh, that is uh, both a cultural shift and a technological shift and also uh, the reurbanization of America, a tremendous potential now to uh, manage oil in the transportation sector and actually uh, move away from having oil as a majority, uh, the, the majority fuel for transportation. And that's what we're going to talk about today, what's real, what isn't real, uh, by the authors of, that were contributed to this book. And we are, this is very much of a roundtable, so I see a lot of experts in this room, and we hope to have a good discussion. Um, as I said, uh, Billy Fields will give an overview of the book itself, some of its major findings. Uh, that will be followed by a panel uh, uh, who will discuss specific initiatives, the challenges and opportunities uh, that we have already uh, uh, tested and are participating in in reducing oil in the transportation sector. We'll then have a short break, five minutes only, gets a cup of coffee, uh, and then we're going to have a, a, a roundtable discussion on policy options going forward in the future to how we can accelerate this trend of uh, backing out of oil uh, in the delivery of transportation services. And there is going to be another transportation bill uh, uh, next year, assuming no continuing resolutions uh, but, or extensions, but uh, that's a big if. So uh, now is the time to think about uh, additional policy initiatives to uh, accelerate this trend. So why don't I just turn it over to Billy, he'll talk, and then we're going to bring the panel up here. Thank you. I want to thank David and Carnegie for giving us this opportunity today, and also want to thank Island Press, uh, who graciously helped us put uh, this book together. It took us a long time, and we needed a lot of push and pull, and we thank them for that uh, as well. In Transport Beyond Oil, we, we look at ways to deal with oil overdependence. There are multiple different ways to slice this, and we, uh, in our chapters in the book, spend a lot of time looking at multiple different ways. There's no one silver bullet solution that's out there to solve this problem, and what we do in, in a series of data-driven chapters is look at the possibilities for decreasing oil dependence in multiple sectors. So we look at transit, active transportation, electric vehicles, land use, transit-oriented development, uh, and then we also have several chapters on freight as well. And in the course of that, what we found is when you, when you sort of boil this all down, there's all sorts of data out there that shows the possibilities for change. There's a lot of possibilities for change. If we pull together multiple sectors together, we can make a big difference. But we're not there right now. Uh, right now, we're, we're stuck uh, with political gridlock. And what we need to do is figure out a way to, to move forward. And 
one of the things that we do in Transport Beyond Oil is try and paint a, paint a picture that's not just doom and gloom, because there's a lot of negatives that are out there. But we try and find a, a path forward. And what I'll do today, uh, we have uh, several authors who are going to come up and talk to you in detail about what they found in their chapters. What I want to do is just lay out the key themes of the book and overview and walk you through that. And then what we'll try and do is search for that common ground where we can push forward. So let's see. Oops, we don't have a PowerPoint yet. I just jumped right in. <laughs> Let's see. You know, if, you look on the, if you hit the pin, I think you're on the... Okay. Maybe. Change uh, There we go. Okay, there we go. There we go. Back in the game there. There you go. So I, I would be remiss as well not to point out... Uh, point out the Transport Beyond Oil book, which is for sale in the back as well. That's my moment of hucksterism. Uh, please take a look at that as we get forward. Thanks. Oops. There we go. Maybe. There's always some technological snafu that always happens. There we go. Okay. Clicker with the clicker. Okay, great. Thanks. So this uh, this is where this book began, unfortunately. This book began uh, in response uh, to the Deepwater Horizon oil tragedy. This is Gulf Shores, Alabama, usually a beautiful beach. When you walk on it, it squeaks because uh, the sand is so clean. The sand was not clean on this day when this picture was taken in 2010. About 150 miles away uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, about a mile uh, down below the waters of the Gulf of Mexico, the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil uh, well was spewing oil to the surface. Uh, at that point in time, I lived in New Orleans, uh, inland, uh, a fair distance, and there were days when the wind was blowing the right direction where I wouldn't go outside because the smell was so strong from the oil and the dispersants. And unfortunately, the people who lived closer to the coast had a much worse condition, and some of them are still suffering from health conditions from this. The wetlands uh, are still struggling to come back in many ways. Uh, the, the folks who uh, work along the Gulf Coast want you to know that the seafood is safe and they want you to buy that seafood. Uh, and there's been a lot of tests that done that show this. Unfortunately, there's still a lot that we don't know about what happened uh, along the Gulf Coast. And what we did is in, the, in, in that summer, uh, John Rennie and I, who is my co-editor of the book, came together and said, we really need to, to start thinking about this and thinking about it in a different way. 70% uh, of the oil that, is, uh, that we use in this country uh, is 70% uh, of, the, of the oil uh, gets used for transportation. Uh, and if you think about the Gulf of Mexico, and you think about oil, all the oil that was floating on the Gulf of Mexico, an area the size of Pennsylvania basically was destined for the transportation sector. Uh, that gave us a thought. What, what, where are we now in terms of multiple sectors of moving forward and really rethinking our transportation sector and moving beyond oil? As I said before, there's no one silver way, silver bullet way to handle this, but through the course of multiple chapters in the book, what you'll see is that there's a lot of hope and opportunity for decreasing the amount of uh, oil that we use for transportation. And what we'll do right now is take a look at the three key themes from the book. Uh, there's lots of specifics, but I've sort of boiled these down into three key themes. 
the oil dependence problem is a national problem, and it requires national solutions. I know that there's a lot of talk about devolving transportation down uh, to more local levels, but when you look at the scope of the problem and the, the possibilities, really, uh, for change, I think you'll see that uh, there is really an opportunity at a national level to look at this. So we'll look at that. The secondary is that current technology can significantly decrease transportation oil dependence. There is an incredible push to focus on technology as the only answer to this problem. When you look uh, from transit to active transportation to land use, what you see is those technologies, they currently exist. Uh, we can use them, we can expand them, and it can make a significant difference. So we'll take a look at that. And then finally, really what we need to do is there's a paradigm shift that's necessary. We need to begin to move beyond uh, sort of looking for the, the next silver bullet and look for opportunities. And really in the, in the area of focusing on the promise of a solution rather than the negatives. I started off uh, to get your attention by focusing on the Deepwater Horizon spill, but that's not going to be what leads to change. That moment has passed. The moment in time from that tragedy has passed, and we still remain where we were before. If we're going to move forward, we need to find promise and a solution, and that's going to be what uh, catalyzes change. So we'll look at that as well. So first, national problem with national solutions. Basically, the overdependence on oil for transportation weakens the U.S. ability to sustain a high quality of life in the 21st century. And there are numerous factors that lead to this, and our chapters in our book deal with this. Uh, uh, Gordon and Burwell, as you may, uh, we have David here and Debbie as well, uh, they look at climate change and the impacts of climate change. And I think that that's obviously the the largest driver that we have in terms of dealing with with transportation and oil use. And what they argue is that climate, uh, that transportation is a great place to look for short-term climate change impacts. changing uh, short-term climate change impacts. There's a real opportunity there, and I think Debbie's going to talk about that in, in her presentation in just a little bit. We also, in our chapters with Sipe and Dodson, look at oil vulnerability and financial risk. One of the things that, uh, that they do is they look at multiple cities around the United States, and what they found is that the transportation and housing costs, when you put them together, what you find is that areas that sprawl have the highest vulnerability. What we're doing as transportation costs bounce around, we have oil costs that bounce around, it puts people in jeopardy uh, for housing foreclosure. And what we saw broadly in, uh, in the 2010 housing crash was that areas that sprawled the most had the most problems. And Sipe and Dodson in their chapter in our book deal with that issue. And then This uh, sort of focusing purely on highways as a transportation mode, uh, we saw a lot of that in the last transportation debate, uh, that that's the only area that the federal government should be focusing on. It really uh, siphons uh, the uh, resources from other areas that could help to deal with oil dependence. Uh, Peter Newman in his chapter deals with this, focusing on community choices and transit. And one of the things that was interesting in the last uh, debate of the transportation bill was many people in Congress don't feel that dealing with oil dependence is a federal issue. Uh, You saw this over and over again. And really what we're looking at here, if we're going to create communities where people want to live uh, with changes in demand, if we're going to create uh, a system that decreases impacts on climate change, and if we're going to create communities where people feel comfortable and can invest and have housing that they can afford, we need to deal with this, and it puts it squarely in the realm of, uh, of federal policy. I want to take one moment, uh, 
I don't get to present in D.C. very often. And uh, my home, uh, my home uh, of New Orleans basically is a, the canary in the coal mine uh, for climate change. There are two factors that are really happening here. There is wetland loss that in many cases was accelerated uh, by oil development. When you put an oil canal basically to create the infrastructure to get oil, it creates saltwater intrusion, which kills the wetland. There are many other factors that lead to that, but that's one of it. So you have wetland loss, and then you have rising sea levels and the oil shrink, uh, the, basically the land itself depressing. And what you have is an area the size of Rhode Island that's basically disappeared in southeast Louisiana over the last 75 years. Uh, if, if we as the United States were losing an entire state, there'd be a war going on to solve this. Unfortunately, there's not any real concerted effort at this point to deal with this. There's multiple efforts at the state of Louisiana, but there's really a need to deal with this issue. And with climate change and rising sea levels, what you're going to see is an incredible problem for the people of southeast Louisiana. Now, many times people in the, in the south or southeast Louisiana feel as though, you know, they're, they're sort of forgotten. However, the, what's happening in southeast Louisiana is going to be happening in communities around uh, the country and around the world. What you saw with Hurricane Sandy was another taste of, of what's coming. And we, if we don't deal directly with climate change, we are going to continue to have that problem. And uh, Debbie's going to look at more detail uh, about transportation in that area, but I would be remiss uh, to be in this audience and not mention this problem to you. So we have the current technology of, uh, that is available to begin to deal with this. Frequently, this is cast in terms of a technology issue. We talk about, oh, we need to find uh, the next vehicle, the, the oilless vehicle that's going to solve our problems. When you begin to look at what's available right now, the technology that currently exists with transit, active transportation, the electric vehicles that we currently have, and the potential for land use to decrease uh, oil use, we have the ability right now to begin to deal with the oil dependence problem. We look in a series of chapters that deal with this. Uh, in transit, we have uh, several authors uh, who deal with this. In active transportation, we have Kevin Mills, who's going to be here today on uh, one of our panels in the afternoon, who's going to talk to you more about active transportation, and Tony Hall, who's going to talk to you a little bit more about the Minneapolis experience with active transportation. And then land use change and transit-oriented development. We have several chapters uh, that deal with this. Uh, we'll have Joanne Potter, who's going to sit with us today, and then Darren Lovas, who's going to sit on the panel this afternoon to talk to you. John Rennie, my co-author, uh, did an analysis of transit stations in the United States and basically found that if we began to actually take out the transit stations that we currently have and began to densify the, around them, we have a huge opportunity to decrease oil, uh, oil dependence and oil use right now. So basically, the gist of this is that multimodal transportation system can decrease oil by fostering density around uh, station locations, improving access to minimize distance traveled, and then providing neighborhood choice for expanding demographic groups. This opportunity exists today, and we can begin to move on it today. We don't have to wait for a bunch of studies to come out to show us where to go. We can begin to move on this today. However, this requires a paradigm shift in the way we're thinking. It really, uh, we've, been, we've been stuck in the transportation culture wars. We've been stuck in this moment where two sides can't figure out how to move together. And 
I think one of the, the, the main issues here is we haven't figured out where we want to move to. We've been focused on fear and all the things that are problems. Uh, and certainly those things don't go away. Climate change, I just showed you uh, images from the Deepwater Horizon spill and showed you southeast Louisiana potentially disappearing uh, from climate change. The fear is real. However, to catalyze change at a broad level, we need to begin to think about opportunity. What are we moving towards to get people to, to move towards that direction? And really what we, we have the opportunity is to move beyond that silver bullet to look at a suite of options for change, electric vehicles, land use changes, transit, active transportation, the things that we have today that we can utilize. And this challenge is inherently political at this point. It's not technical. We're always focused on the technical challenge, but really we have a political challenge of selling this, of selling this uh, at a level that people begin to change. And moving beyond these sort of fear-based motivations is, is one of the things that Peter Newman talks about in his chapter in our book. And what he, what he focuses on is, is really places for people. People want places that have a high quality of life. And the types of environments that we're talking about that are based around transit and active transportation are exactly the type of places that people that are most in demand right now. And we have an opportunity to seize on this to really, to really make change. And so overall, this looks like the places Americans want to live. There are stronger local economies and improved quality of life. So I, sh I had a lot of words. Uh, we went through a lot of words in this. But really, it's about places. It's about places that people want to live. If we're going to move towards something, towards opportunity, we move, need to move towards places that people want to live. Uh, this is an image of the Midtown Greenway in Minneapolis. Uh, Tony and his group and uh, Transit for Livable Communities spent a lot of time working on this place. Uh, you have new development that's sprouting up along uh, the Midtown Greenway. People want to live there. And you have an opportunity to decrease oil dependence as people move along the Greenway and utilize transit. These are the type of places that Americans want to live. And then the type of places, the same type of places that we can utilize to manage oil dependence. What we're going to see in the rest of the presentations is, is a lot of technical issues. There are a lot of issues to be solved uh, to make this dream a reality. But the vision itself is available today, and it's something that we, that we can strive for. And I think that opportunity, moving towards an opportunity, moving towards a future of choice, that's something that we have the opportunity to do today. So as we, as we focus on technology and focus on all the changes that can come in the next 50 years, we can begin today to work on the type of communities that we want to live and at the same time manage oil dependence. And with that, I think uh, we'll move into our uh, panel discussion. So I thank you very much for your attention today and look forward to talking with you. Thanks. Thank you, Billy. And um, I'm just reviewing the agenda here, and I realize we've, we've not given Billy an opportunity to respond to questions or be on the panel. He gets to close this and open it and close it. But we're going to figure out a way to get him on the final panel on uh, policy initiatives going forward. So you will have a chance to, to engage with Billy then. But thank you very much. Um, I think uh, the best thing to do, this is a panel that uh, most of you don't need any introduction. Uh, you have uh, their uh, affiliations uh, in your handouts. 
I do, uh, and Billy has said a little bit about what they talk about. So they're going to give presentations. I do want to say uh, that this is a very expert panel. I'm very delighted to be up here with them. Uh, Debbie Gordon uh, is now with Carnegie uh, and uh, working on unconventional oil, but she has a strong background in transportation uh, at the at Union of Concerned Scientists and elsewhere and wrote a book on... Um, what is that book? Two billion cars. Two billion cars, right, with Dan Sperling. Uh, so uh, Debbie is going to, to talk about, uh, short term, the, the impacts of transportation on climate change and, and how we can ameliorate uh, those, uh, is, those impacts in the short term. Uh, Joanne can talk about anything because she's so well uh, uh, researched and and talented, but I, I reminded it just occurred to me that in addition to transportation options, she I think she was the lead uh, author on the you know impacts of climate on transportation infrastructure too, with a focus on on the Gulf Coast. So she can you can ask her any of those questions as well. Tony um, uh, was the director of the um, Active Transportation Pilot Program. Is that right, Tony? And um, in in the Minneapolis pilot program for Minneapolis, yes, yeah, for for Minneapolis. Uh, and are you still with the Transit for Livable Communities? Or no, actually, uh, I'm now locally here with Tool Design Group and so. Oh, okay. So anyway, uh, they're going to introduce themselves. So we're going to start with Debbie, correct? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Good folks. So as Anisha gets this set up. Um, interestingly, I think that when we started, when we were invited by Billy and John to participate in this book and were enthusiastic to do so, it was about 2010 after the BP spill and we were thinking, you know, this is a huge issue and a huge challenge, transportation beyond oil, something that professionally David and I, many of you in the room have been talking about for a very long time. And what's happened since is even more of a challenge, actually. It's the work that I'm doing now. I won't focus mostly on that, but I'll just start off and then have a couple of slides on it. The challenge is bigger than it ever was before because now the paradigm shift, I mean the hoped for paradigm shift that Billy spoke of in transportation is still out there and we'll talk about that today, but the real paradigm shift in oil is abundance. We've moved in the last year and a half from oil scarcity. We've been living since the 70s and even before thinking America uses so much, there's only so much oil to be accessed, and there's a scarcity. That's the paradigm shift. That's the elephant in the room. So the transformation of transportation off oil now in the face of oil abundance, I mean, North American and global oil abundance is going to be, I think, the most important lift of all and the heaviest lift of all. It's, it's both... Um, paramount and impossible at the same time. So then the question for transportation, that's a lot of the work that I do now at Carnegie on unconventional oils, but then the question that this chapter is about, which is, well, what's the real issue being brought about? If there's no real scarcity of oil. There are other issues with oil. What is really pushing us to push ourselves into changing transportation? And it's climate. It's climate change. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, as probably all of you in the room know, there's evidence that the, the earth is warming. It was about um, record highs to record lows back in the 50s were about even. And then starting in the 60s, we started seeing man-made um, CO2 
the dominant greenhouse gas that lasts for a very long time, starting to tilt the scales. And we're starting to see the floods and the tides rising and the feverish heat and the forest fires. We're starting to see, see this. It's very difficult, though, and this is where policymakers get caught up, it's very difficult to point to one meteorological event and say that is climate change. But if we start to wrap it all together, the majority of scientists do believe that we are, that the, that the earth is warming. CO2, it's not really what I'm going to talk about mostly today because there's a really interesting underbelly to transportation and climate change. But CO2 is clearly the major issue here. It's the greenhouse gas that lasts the longest in the atmosphere. We're talking, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years. So once you put it out there, it's loaded. It's like the blanket has been put on the planet and you can't really take it off. Um, so CO2 remains to be a huge issue. The reason why CO2 isn't what I'm going to talk about is that Transportation is a major, there's a majority of CO2 from combustion of, of oil in transportation, but we'll see that utilities have more CO2. What happens is there are countervailing measures that make transportation kind of bump up to the top of the sector list when you look in, at, at climate change in more disaggregated terms. So these are the shares of um, greenhouse gas emissions, majority of which is CO2 by sector, and transportation is about a third. And the reason why I say about a third and not the classic 27% is if you take the slice of the pie out of industry, that's actually a growing slice of the pie now with unconventional oil that goes into extracting, producing, refining, and transporting oil, which only exists, 70% of which, to move us around. So if you take a slice out of the industrial part of this pie and put it into the transportation pie, which is the before beyond oil slice, then we're about a third, even with um, electricity, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So transportation rivals the electricity sector in terms of transportation emissions. But there's also these non-CO2 air pollutant impacts. And interestingly, those actually factor into local air pollution. So this is a conversation not just, say, here at home, but in Beijing and China, where we're having a lot of problems with air pollution. You have the ozone, which is smog, that contributes to climate change. These, All of these ozone, black carbon, sulfates, which are cooling agents, and aerosols, are the difference between these contributors to climate change and CO2 is that these are short-term. So there's a lot that's going on in our atmosphere that's, that's noise or contributing or masking CO2 that lasts maybe 20 years or 30 years as com or 50 years as compared to CO2, which is once you combust fossil fuel and put it into the atmosphere, now you've committed that molecule of CO2 to thousands of years. So that's really the big issue here. And you have both of those working at the same time in terms of these incidents of changing our climate. So this is a way of showing it in the pie. You have CO2, big, big contributor. Then you have all of the other small pieces of the pie, the hydrocarbon, the unburned hydrocarbon, the black carbon, the nitrous oxide, the ozone, which is smog, and the methane. We hear a lot about fracking and where that plays a role. These are all stronger climate gases than CO2, but they don't last as long as CO2. So it's a different factor. But then you have the particulate matter, which interestingly, as you'll see in this talk, does not come from transportation. Particulate matter comes from unburned carbon, largely from burning coal, some diesel, but mostly coal. That, interestingly, masks climate change, which is why you see this kind of veil, this circle over it. What's happening is sulfates cool the climate. So when we have a volcanic eruption, 
sulfates, or when we burn high sulfur coal, sulfates, we actually cool the climate and that masks climate change. So it's not as if that carbon's not still there, it's that the climate's not feeling the full effect of that. And that's the fact that transportation has really no sulfate in it, very little internationally and none in America because we have low sulfur fuel, means that the transportation sector is a full-on warming sector. All it emits is basically CO2 and these other gases that are full-on pushing you into warming. The other sectors actually have cooling associated with them. And this is where it shows how it works out. And this work I found really interesting when David and I were first working on this back in 2010, right as Billy and John were working on the book, um, wrote a paper here at Carnegie, which I don't know if it's outside, but if anyone's interested, we can get you a copy of it. It's just on transportation driving climate disruption. This is, comes from NASA's work. Very, very interesting. So it takes the cooling on your left and the warming con contribution of different sectors, of different activities on your right. And if you want to see what a sector will do to climate change, you have to balance the two. Because if you're emitting warming agents and cooling agents, and the cooling agents mask the climate change, you end up actually offsetting some of the short-term effects of what you're doing. The only sector that has, um, or the, the largest sector, I will say, that has mostly warming and very little cooling is transportation, as you can see here. So power, huge sector for carbon dioxide, huge sector for climate change. But in the shorter term, it has a lot of warming, but also a lot of cooling. And so when you think about priorities and what to go for first, what you really want to go for is getting the CO2 out of the atmosphere that's not being masked, which is why we argue in the chapter the transportation from a climate perspective is so crucially important. The same thing with industry. You could see the bottom bar. Industry, all industries, whether you make glass or cement or whatever you're making, it has CO2, a fair amount of CO2 actually, even rivaling transportation, but it has a lot of short-term cooling. So why is this so important for transportation? Transportation is, again, the sector that's producing all CO2, nothing to offset it in the short term, and it's a growing sector with more and more vehicles worldwide. So in the U.S., we might not be growing, but we know the emerging countries are growing. We're thinking maybe, you know, to 2025, about 2 billion cars, which is the book that I wrote with Dan Sperling. We'll never know exactly when we'll get there, but we're at a billion worldwide. And those cars are a bit fuzzy on the edges with the biggest part of the, the, the curve here, which is cycles and scooters. That's not a big part of America's transportation um, sector, but when you go to Asia, motorized cycles and, cycles and scooters are a huge part of the air pollution and the climate problem, which adds a big part of this. But this is why dealing with autom automobiles and trucks are so important. We talked about it before, David. David mentioned this from, you know, edging from climate into the stuff that I'm doing now, just to give you a sense of the oil part of this issue. Um, unlike uh, other economic sectors, transportation stuck on oil. Transportation has no substitute for oil. And what's interesting, bridging to the work I'm doing now on unconventional oils, is we really thought two, three, five years ago, t certainly 10 years ago, that we were going to have to find substitutes for oil because oil was going to run out. You know, it's a depletable resource. That was the mantra. We've been saying it to ourselves since 1973, since we had lines of the gas pump here. Oil was going to run out. We're an oil taker. The U.S. is not an oil maker. That was the mantra. And we were going to have to put biofuels into this sector. We were going to have to put electric vehicles in this sector. We were going to have to put a lot of energy efficiency into the sector because the world is mobile, getting more so, and we're running out of the main fuel source. 
Well, the reality is it's not happening. And that's what's changing all of this. But still, transportation, whatever fate there is for oil, transportation right now kind of goes along with it because 70% of all the oil fuels transportation and transportation is hooked on oil for 94, 95% of all mobility. So really, the only substitute we have at the moment, ready substitute for oil, is other types of oil. And these are the other types of oil. I'd like you to introduce you to oil. Oil as we never knew it, and now oil as we're now getting to know it, which is a hodgepodge of hydrocarbon. Really, we've gotten, what happened was the price of oil got high enough, first in 2005, then again in 2008, and has kind of stayed at or about that $90, $100 per barrel price. That what happened was the economy, the market worked. The economy turned on technology. And we shifted this technological possibility frontier curve on oil and all these oils, and they're not even all oil, all these hydrocarbons that weren't economic at $40 a barrel, at $30 a barrel, at $60 a barrel, are economic at $100 a barrel and $90 a barrel. So we're so good technologically that we can turn anything with hydrogen and carbon into oil. And that includes having the money to go deep, deep into the Gulf you know, where the BP spill happened for the ultra-deep oil, um, which is a more conventional oil in an unconventional setting. But it's also oil itself is getting unconventional, and it's going to range, it is ranging from the tar sands, the oil sands, the bitumen, and the kerrigan, which are more like window putty, um, all the way down to these ultra-light oils that we're reading about in the Balkan and the Eagle Ford in terms of fracking. All of those are like nail polish remover. So we're talking about a really a brave new world of oil that has to turn things that are really different from oil, oil, what it has been, conventional oil, and really different from each other into gasoline, diesel, jet fuel. And we can do it, but it has huge carbon consequences doing this. And that's the work that I'm working on now just to say that, you know, we believe at Carnegie this is a key moment to determine the future of our oil carbon balance. So this almost has to, the book to my mind, you have to get to the solutions by two sides. Now dealing with oil as the changing paradigm of oil along with the changing paradigm of transportation. So targeting on-road transportation is win-win-win. Um, it's win from long-term climate forcing because the less you drive, the more efficient your vehicles are, the more you go into electrification. All of these solutions that are going to be talked about the rest of these, the event are all reducing CO2, carbon, the 1,000-year the gas. But they also will reduce the short-term climate forcers, the ozone, the black carbon. Those short-term climate forcers will be reduced by doing that. And then it's also good for air quality which is the third win on everything we do to back oil out of transportation. And I think this is my last slide, but just leaving you with the jumping off point for the rest of the book, really, and the work that I have done in the past with Dan Sperling. You know, to my mind, tran transforming transportation is really about three things. We called it the three legs of the stool. It's about transforming the vehicles. It's about transforming the oils and the fuels. It used to just be about transforming fuels, but now it's about transforming oil itself and hydrocarbon. And then what a lot of the book focuses on, which is the hardest lift of all three, the, the, the rickiest leg of the stool, is transforming mobility. So that's, that's, that's where I will leave you, and that's the jumping off point for the rest of the panel and the day. Thank you, Debbie. That's a lot of information.
Brenda, why don't you get up? Um, uh, maybe we have one qu uh, time for one question. If anybody wants a clarifying question for Debbie, we will have a time for discussion. All set? You got that? There you go. Down. forcing, which is mostly sulfates, is it's really bad for public health. Really bad. So this cooling is buying us time in the worst of all ways. It's buying us time to kind of choke and kill ourselves. So, you know, there's a lot of cooling that might be going on in China with all of the coal, but it's not for the benefit of the air quality. So it's not as if you want to take advantage of it, but it is, you have to be cognizant that it is masking a tremendous amount of warming that would otherwise be going on. So we're really like the frogs in the pot now, and we don't even know how hot the temperature is getting because there are other things we're doing that are kind of hiding that from us, but it's not good stuff that we're doing. Joanna. Go ahead. Go ahead. Joanna. Did that answer your question? Well, is, I mean, is, is there an actual, you know, if, we're, if we talk about... Um, if we talk about two degrees Celsius as kind of um, the maximum that we can that we can warm at this point without doing permanent damage or too much permanent damage or whatever, um, is it actually much more than that? Because what we're doing now that looks like two degrees Celsius is actually much more than that because yeah. of this cooling. Yeah, I th I think that. I don't. I haven't seen a number to it. And again, you're talking in different timescales, which is hard for climate change because it's really a long, long-term problem that everyone's talking about. Even so much so that we could, if we were disciplined enough, we could basically emit all the CO2 and then go on a, you know, just basically off CO2 diet and still meet our goal. So it's not, again, CO2 isn't about when you emit it. It's about the total concentrations. So... There's a time factor here. It could, we could talk afterwards. It's very, it is very complicated. But I also don't think that we're going to get off the cooling, the, these other cooling agents that quickly because they're tied up. They're tied up in things like coal. So you would get off coal, you would then reduce your cooling and your warming at the same time because that's where you're mostly putting it out. So. Okay. Yeah, I think the, 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 the actual warming is not happening as fast as predicted because of the parts per million, but we can talk about, so that might be an explanation. Joan. Hi, everyone. It's uh, good to be here. And I really want to uh, commend uh, Billy and and John for their vision at, at, of putting this book together. It's a, a great achievement. But more, more than their vision, I want to uh, commend them on their tenacity uh, because this was a Herculean effort to pull together uh, all these headstrong authors and actually craft something that uh, hung together and and makes for uh, great and informative reading. So, uh, bravo! And I think tenacity is the name of the game in in our business. That tenacity is what it's all about. We've got. Uh, a huge challenge uh, in our hands that we need to deal with. And seeing those uh, pictures of the oil spill 
reminded me of uh, working a few years prior on uh, the Gulf Coast study uh, with the U.S. Department of Transportation and the U.S. Geological Survey that was looking at the impacts of climate change on the Gulf Coast region. We started that study before Katrina hit. And uh, then uh, and that just more and more dramatized how uh, severe the impacts of uh, extreme weather events can be, and we're looking at uh, an increasing incidence of extreme weather events, and so now we're looking at Sandy. And so there's this whole concern that even as we're trying to reduce our greenhouse gas uh, impact on the planet, that we're preparing for the the, uh, increased risk that climate change is posing, to our cities, and my hope is is that there's an opportunity to bring that work together, that as we shape more uh, resilient communities, uh, we can also be shaping them to be less oil dependent and more uh, fuel efficient. So that's the task, and we will be tenacious. So there has been a great deal of work uh, on the whole area of fuel-efficient mobility. And I use that phrase, fuel-efficient mobility, uh, consciously because a lot of the focus has been on technology and uh, fuel-efficient vehicles. And fuel-efficient vehicles are absolutely critical. And there's a beginning to be market penetration. I was at the grocery store the other day, and a guy was helping me with my groceries. And I said, oh, it's a silver Prius. And then I realized that was not a distinguishing factor. There were, you know, a half a dozen silver Priuses in, in the parking lot. That This is good to see. And so we know that technology is advancing. The administration is pushing fuel efficiency uh, standards that are providing regulatory incentives for progress in that area. And we're or this is all good to see. We also know that technology is not going to do it in terms of reducing the uh, hunk, the wedge of the the pie of greenhouse gas emissions that come from transport. And so we have to be looking at other uh, strategies and therefore fuel-efficient mobility, efficient ways of people getting around and getting where they need to be. So a number of studies, uh, I worked on uh, moving cooler with my uh, colleague, Darren Lovas, and so we'll be speaking directly about that. I'm glad Darren showed up. He's back there. There's a number of uh, very, very important studies have been uh, contributing to this. I realized as I was reviewing my slides that I left off the DOT report to Congress uh, on greenhouse gas emissions from transportation, and that, that should certainly be on the list uh, from a couple of years ago. But the moving cooler study is the one that Darren and I know best, and so I'd like to uh, give you a little bit uh, Uh, a glimpse of some of the findings that are incorporated from that study and others in the chapter that we wrote. The analytic team for Moving Cooler was was with uh, Cambridge Systematics, where I was at the time. And I uh, really want to commend a couple of my colleagues there, Chris Porter and David Jackson, who uh, were also really instrumental in that work. 
The steering committee brought together uh, unlikely bedfellows, and uh, it was a very good to have this range of players who were sponsoring the uh, the study, and we worked with them to uh, to design the study. And the focus was on a set of uh, strategies beyond technology to see which of these could be most effective in reducing greenhouse gases. And when you looked at these strategies uh, individually, the uh, the results were not impressive. Uh, you had uh, uh, speed limit reductions, VMT fees, uh, a number of strategies that made uh, a, a few percent difference from baseline in terms of greenhouse gas uh, reductions. But... The, what we found, and I think one of the most important uh, outcomes of Moving Cooler, was that when you started combining strategies, when you linked multiple strategies together, uh, that's, that's when you have your biggest impact. And so we're, uh, the, less, the takeaway lesson here is that it's a package deal. We looked at uh, several different strategies, uh, bundle strategies, and found that depending on the focus of there was a different level of effectiveness in different bundles. And I'll just show you these figures uh, to whet your appetite, and then you can go to the chapter for the details. But what uh, was uh, also very compelling was that of all the strategies, the, uh, the impact of pricing was far and away the most significant. So that if you took the most aggressive outcomes of strategies without pricing, you could get an 18% uh, reduction from baseline. But if you added pricing to that, uh, you could get that percent reduction down to, uh, down to 35%, which is much more significant. But implementing pricing is, by in whatever form, is a real challenge. I just put out there where the U.S. is in terms of fuel prices compared to uh, many other uh, developed uh, countries and uh, ask, is there room to move there? Can we figure out where the political will is to institute some of uh, some serious pricing? We also looked at a bundle that pulled together land use, transit, and non-motorized uh, strategies. And we found here, once again, that it's the combination of these strategies that makes the difference. Uh, we commend to you a, a, a study out of EPA that really looked at the uh, important savings in oil consumption from different levels of density. And I assume that many of you are already familiar with this EPA study. So it, the uh, the bottom line is that there are ways that we can uh, pull our uh, multiple strategies together to have an impact over the long term on oil consumption uh, beyond the technology strategy, but it will take a tenacity. We need regionally based tailored strategies, although this is a national problem. How those bundles are tailored how they are shaped to reflect the development patterns, the uh, geography, and the, uh, the economic drivers in particular regions will be very different. And so uh, th there will be a lot of refinement at the regional level. 
We need to integrate the, the approaches, as uh, several people have already mentioned. So we're not just looking at greenhouse gas emission reductions, but energy security, sustainability, livable communities, public health, dot, dot, dot. And as is uh, becoming increasingly and sadly uh, more uh, obvious, we need to uh, integrate those strategies with strategies for climate resilience. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Um, Got to be fair to all, uh, all the panelists. Does anybody have a question you want immediately? Or we'll go to the next one. Tony, do you want Yeah, thanks. And um, yeah, before I start, I also do want to recognize um, both uh, Billy Fields and John Renee for actually having uh, the vision and, and the tenacity, like I said, to actually uh, assemble a great group of folks to contribute to a book that I think is addressing probably the paramount issue uh, of our generation. Um, before I launch into to my presentation and talk about what we learned uh, with the pilot program, it's really a good idea for me to have the disclaimer for myself. Um, you know, I, I, when I'm around this group of, of humbling and distinguished uh, researchers, lecturers, uh, and academics, uh, it's important for me to, to recognize that uh, my role to this is a different background. I'm a practitioner. Uh, I've been a transportation planner for about the last 15 years. Um, and so when, when Billy uh, approached me about uh, contributing and co-writing a, a chapter to the book, I thought, with great hesitation, I, I, I'm not really that kind of person. It's not, you know, it's not my forte to be contributing to books. Um, and then once Billy actually discussed, explained what we, what the content would be about, and that he'd do most of the heavy lifting work, I thought, okay, let's let's go for that. That sounds like a good idea. Um, that said, um, I also come to the my my role in active transportation from a different background. Um, oil is not my primary driver for that. Uh, I think it's a critical. Um, an issue to address with our automobile culture, but um, I came more from a background of understanding the the broader role that the automobile has in our community, and that it it has a lot of other destructive forms in terms of the way that it 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 designs the communities for us. It, it creates social disconnection. Um, it's the most it's the leading cause that somebody won't reach their twenty fifth birthday is that the automobile is our primary form of transportation, and so. Um, in my career, I've worked, uh, started out in a metropolitan planning organization doing regional transportation planning for the government, um, then worked in a nonprofit with transit for local communities in Minneapolis on the non-motorized pilot program, which I'll talk about today. Um, but throughout that time, I've always struggled in my career to try and um, lend some resources and lend some voice to bicycling and walking. Um, it's always been something difficult to put into the conversation, um, and it's always been something that, that has been underinvested. Um, and our policies are not rich in supporting it. Um, and so I've, I've, I've fought and I've, I've always spent my entire career sort of saying, what if we could do things different? What if we could maybe invest a little bit more? Um, and, and a series of things that actually sort of the non-motorized pilot program created some of those what ifs because, you know, what if we, what if we actually had some dedicated and explicit funding that would invest directly in bicycling, walking in communities? Um, what if, what if we set up that program for performance measures and we said we were going to measure and understand the impacts of that? 
Um, you know, and what if we, what if instead of having the bureaucracy run it, what if we actually put some advocates or, or, or community folks in charge of administering those dollars? Um, and <laughs> the last part's a little bittersweet. What if, what if we decided to treat all those projects like they were part of a federal aid highway system, which we'll, we'll get to. <laughs> Anyways, a little a little preface. I know, uh, and I, I don't think a lot of folks in this room need a, a, a lecture in the history of uh, federal transportation funding policy. In fact, our friends at RTC um, are greatly responsible for the last two decades in terms of pushing um, to change the uh, flexibility uh, and, and make the funding work for more livable communities. Uh, but essentially, if you look back to ICT, which is actually the first time that we actually created funding that was flexible that you could actually invest in bicycling and walking prior to that. And I think the 1987 Transportation Bill, which didn't have a good acronym, it was uh, the Surface Transportation and Uniform Relocation Assistance Act of 1987. Uh, but essentially, it wasn't an eligible thing. It was frowned upon if you were going to invest in bicycling and walking. And again, um, the Highway Trust Fund, largely based on the gas tax, they, they really you know thought they had a good case for that. Uh, but starting with the Intermodal Surface Transportation Equity Act in 1991 and with the Transportation Enhancements Program and then, and then rec trails, we actually started to have the flexibility. And you can see through the different errors, the, uh, and I'm sorry, the, the graphic's a little small. The spending on, on bicycling and walking started to increase on a national level, and, and that's significant. Um, it started to allow folks to explore developing multi-use trails and, and creating opportunities for active transportation. Um, moving forward into T21, which expanded some of that funding a little bit more. And then in 2005, with Safety Lou, um, we actually had two programs that were the first of their kind to explicitly um, direct funds to directing and bicycling walking. The Safe Routes to School program to improve options for folks walking and bicycling to our schools. Um, and then the Non-Motorized Transportation Pilot Program, which actually identified four communities um, to explicitly uh, direct $25 million in each community uh, to invest in bicycling and walking. And of course, I, it, it's important the asterisk at the bottom here is you see the bar starts to go off. Um, with the um, stimulus package, we actually had a huge boon, boon for bicycling and walking because in ERA, there were a lot of queued projects for um, bicycling and walking from some of the planning from previous um, funding bills. And so that allowed us to actually leverage a lot of, of network in 2009 and 2010 beyond. The unfortunate thing that this slide doesn't show us is that we've now moved into another transportation bill, which has sort of pushed us maybe not so far forward in investing in bicycling and walking. Um, but I think that our, our evidence is growing for momentum. So again, the safety loop, the non-motorized transportation pilot program actually had a very brief and succinct uh, section. It was one of the smaller parts of the transportation bill, which is amazing if you folks look and read that uh, amazing document. Uh, but essentially, the purpose was, was straightforward. Demonstrate the extent that bicycling and walking can carry a significant part of the transportation load and, present, and represent a major portion of the transportation solution within selected communities. Um, and there were some interesting goals to look and measure and quantify. Um, and, and the idea that uh, the secretary would, would basically report on these to Congress to see what these findings are within the four communities. They didn't actually identify funding resources for the evaluation, uh, but that came later. And, and further down in the legislation is, again, where, where there's an add-on that sort of came in at the last minute, which is notwithstanding any other provision of the law, projects assisted under this subsection in nine words that sort of locked us into some issues, shall be treated as projects on a federal aid system, which essentially means that everything you were going to do with this program would be treated as a large federal highway project in all of its um, various uh, red tape that's involved in terms of clearance. The four communities that were selected for this, um, including Minneapolis, where, where I 
worked um, were Columbia, Missouri, Marin Cal County, California, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Sheboygan County, Wisconsin. Um, each of these were represented basically to um, have different types of geographical interests, but also scales and size to look at the different impacts there. Also, coincidentally, they were from where a lot of the folks on the committee authorizing the bill were from, um, which is uh, also gets us to the Minneapolis experience. Um, in addition to that, though, once the, the, the communities were identified, um, they all gathered together. They're sort of, we're, we've got this special program. It's unique. Um, they convened here in Washington, D.C., I think in 2005. Billy, you were at that meeting? 2006. 2006, yes. Um, but at that, at that point, meeting and working with partners, including the Federal Highway Administration, the U.S. Uh, DOT's Volpe Center, um, the folks at Rails to Trails, of course, at the table with that, Marin County Bicycle Coalition and the Centers for Disease Control looked at sort of the questions that this program needed to answer and actually decided then that the best way to move forward was to work cooperatively um, and to share an evaluation and measurement and with programs. And I think that was important in terms of um, the communities being able to report consistent results um, at the end of the program. May I interrupt? I, sure. I apologize to the administration of this program. But why is it that the uh, pilot communities were so centralized in the Midwest and then the Marin County, the far west? Why was there nothing in the why was there nothing in the northeast or in the south? This is probably one of those questions I could get in trouble for <laughs> answering, but I'm not working in the government or for the program anymore. But um, Chatham House rules here, by the way. Yeah, essentially, um, again, there were a number of members of the House Infrastructure Committee that during that time that, um, as they wrangled over which communities would be selected, um, the geographies did fall in certain areas. So um, I guess that's the subtle way to say that there was more than just geographical considerations in play. Not surprisingly. Yeah. Anyways, um, again, the Minneapolis pilot actually was would stand out as, as very unique in several ways. Um, first of all, it was the the only large metropolitan city um, selected, uh, but also in in some of the deciding factors in terms of of where specifically the Minneapolis pilot would occur. Uh, there was some wrangling between whether this should be in Minneapolis or it should be in St. Paul or some variation, and at some point they settled on. Um, it would be the city of Minneapolis and adjacent communities with a focus on connections to Minneapolis. And this is important because the other communities actually had sort of singular jurisdictions identified uh, where you would actually implement the full program under sort of one umbrella. Um, in Minneapolis, that meant we had sort of a confusing array of, of 15 uh, municipalities in three counties um, to sort of administer the program at. And then additionally, I think the, the more important thing from Minneapolis standpoint was the selection of a, a non-governmental organization to administer the fund. And again, this had somewhat to do to look and explore the capacities of non-governmental organizations to, uh, to maybe push for new solutions and innovation, but also possibly um, some political ramifications of, of maybe thinking whether or not current DOTs or, or MPOs or public works would actually be able to sort of push the envelope um, with a program of this nature. Um, so that created uh, an interesting dynamic for, for the implementation in Minneapolis. And again, the agency that administered the program, uh, Transit for Liberal Communities, and uh, I worked with the uh, agency there for um, about four years. I came in uh, about a year into the program, um, and my focus was actually helping to really do program administration, but also help to do data collection and analysis uh, to coordinate uh, the measurement effort. 
but TLC was a established organization, a nonprofit, not unlike sort of a, a local level of, of Rails to Trails. They had gained a pretty strong reputation working on transportation issues, um, and they had a mission that really does align well with the the pilot program. Um, but the idea of actually bringing in this nonprofit organization for a federal aid transportation program, which is a first for, for federal transportation, had its own set of challenges. Um, we had to set up the city of Minneapolis was actually would act as the fiscal agent because federal aid funds couldn't go directly to a non-tax authority entity. Um, and it also allowed, it also created a situation where TLC would need to set up a, uh, a sort of structure um, to prioritize investments. And so they had to develop a sort of community advisory committee based with the stakeholders from a lot of the jurisdictions, electeds and practitioners. Um, essentially, I'd like to say it was sort of like setting up a metropolitan planning organization in a tent. Um, and uh, that said, it, 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 did, it did work out pretty well, but it took a lot of cooperation with, with the other jurisdictions, with the FHWA and MnDOT to really uh, identify an effective process to make the, uh, the selection of projects and programming uh, run efficiently. Well, efficiently might not be the best word. Um, anyways, through uh, selecting of a stakeholder group and using the board as sort of a decision-making body for this, uh, the, the Bike Walk Twin Cities program was established. That was sort of the branding for the non-motorized program in the Twin Cities. Um, and they created sort of three guiding principles to use for sort of the prioritization of projects and selecting um, what, what they would spend money on. And I think those were important in terms of getting to the eventual outcomes and innovation. It was looking really maximizing roadway for all users, creating a regional, a regional le legacy of innovation and, and planning, um, and building local capacity, which is something that was lacking at the beginning of the program. The outcome uh, was actually, um, at this point, and this is actually only through 2011, but it was actually pretty significant in terms of de developing a network for bicycling in the community and actually being able to have uh, a transportation system that's identifiable. Uh, this included spending money in areas of not just infrastructure but programming uh, and other types of, of planning assistance. Um, and uh, it actually ended up in almost doubling the existing facilities in Minneapolis, which is very impressive because it was already a bike-strong community before the program. Um, I think one of the key things were a lot of the uh, innovation. Innovation, I think, is measured not just at sort of a national level but at a local level. What's innovative and you get something done the first time in a community has a big um, impact in terms of moving forward. And in Minneapolis, there are a number of firsts in types of, in types of innovative facilities. Um, in fact, they were the first in developing a, a large-scale bike-sharing program, um, which now you see is being replicated in many cities around the country, um, but also in terms of innovative street designs and other things that now um, are becoming more accepted and mainstreamed in the community, um, allowing them to, to make bicycling and walking a more pervasive part of the transportation infrastructure. Um, program measurement for, again, for the entire uh, set of pilots was actually quite a challenging event. We, we, we haven't really tracked bicycling and walking in a meaningful way at the community level, and so establishing a way to answer the questions for Congress and develop metrics in a meaningful way was quite difficult. There were three overall efforts that were replicated across the community, and I'll touch briefly on each. Um, one was a community-wide household survey that was at the beginning and end of the program, um, essentially to sort of do mailers and sort of do sampling. Uh, there were some challenges in terms of getting the the minimum sampling across the communities to try and get at least 100 responses from each community. That'll, that resulted in some oversampling and some issues, particularly with the smaller, more rural communities. Um, in the end, when the, when the bookend results were completed, um, the data was unable to detect consistent results, and so we didn't really get something that we could produce results from based on that study. I think a lot of that lesson was more about some of the problems with surveying and, and, and those issues more than the, the program itself. 
Then the uh, Alta Planning also developed a mode share model that was based on using annual counts and intercept data uh, on the ground, um, and then relying on the ACS figures to try and project out the changes in mode share. Um, there were a lot of limitations using that too, a lot of that based on the fact that ACS and census data have margins of error that would actually mask the changes you might see in any of the communities. Um, and then the third effort was sort of a response to that. The working group actually developed a model largely based on some work from Ben Rasmussen, who's a strong analyst at, at, at um, Volpe Transportation Center, um, and essentially used National Household Travel Survey data to create some surrogates to identify mode share at the community level, um, and then use the, the actual observed changes and, and pedestrian and bike behavior in the communities to project out mode change based on um, calculating out from a baseline. Um, the results of this actually um, were pretty good uh, you, across the communities. There were there were increases in each of the communities in terms of observed bicycling and walking. Um, and when using the model, we were able to project out averted BMT um, and then also miles of gasoline saved. Um, one of the drawbacks of this was that um, again to, to estimate this, we really looked at trips as being a one to one relationship. That a mile walked or a mile biked was a mile that wasn't driven. Um, and in some instances, we know that's not true. There's an elasticity of mode choice to consider. Um, and so this, I think, gave us a really very conservative estimate of, of what the actual impacts in terms of averted VMT were. Um, and that was one of the things we've explored in the chapter is looking at what is the impact of that mode choice elasticity. And so looking at that exact same model, we, we looked at the um, average trip distances based on National Household Travel Survey for not just biking and walking, but also for driving and thinking about the relationship. If I if I walked a mile to go to a restaurant, and that choice itself might have been the reason I walked that mile, but if I were going to drive, I might actually drive significantly further as I think about the congestion costs or cost of parking or other factors. Um, and so we actually decided to look at um, the impact of sort of having a higher bound or lower bound driving uh, impact of that. And so we looked at, you know, average driving trips in the country right now are about 9.7 miles each. And so you have that sort of your high threshold. And if you cut that in half to four and a half, that gives you a different way to look at what the possible savings could be. Um, and you can see here that has a significant impact in terms of um, projecting out what the potential averted BMT is from bicycling and walking. And you see that, you know, the magnitude of, of change that we see for biking and walking trips starts to have a much different resonance. So um, in addition to that, I think one of the important things that we had to look at, and, and again, with TLC being a non-government agency, we really wanted to look at um, how effective having a non-government um, actor was in the process. And so this was actually, we did actually work with Billy Fields to do a qualitative analysis of process. This involved uh, interviews with 28 of the uh, stakeholders within the program. This included electeds, public works folks, uh, staff for the, from the agency, consultants, um, and essentially to look at what was happening and, and, and what were the impacts of the program and change. And we learned a number of lessons um, that some of them were not surprising. That First of all, there wasn't a, a lot of happiness that there was a non-government agency at the table pushing things. Uh, but that everybody had the same themes in terms of issues with systems change um, and realizing that there were issues in terms of administrative culture and in how we do things, um, established practices and standards and how we actually project things. Um, and then the political will and public, public acceptance. There were a lot of barriers and not just one item that need to be considered in terms of actually pushing for systems change at a, at a, at a community level. Uh, and I'm wrapping myself up quickly because I'm talking long. Um, 
But essentially, this really comes down to sort of three major themes that, that really we, we found that need to be identified when you want to address change on a systems level. And one of them, overcoming the bureaucratic inertia, um, the regulatory and cultural barriers are, are really sort of defenses that we use in terms of not to resist change, um, particularly at an agency level. Altering everyday practices is important, and there is uh, a habit of looking at the status quo as being right and being the safest way to do things. And there's an onus on proving that doing things differently um, is better, and that bar for that is much higher. Um, and then there's an idea of changing societal expectations, being able to actually work within the community and, and change expectations about what outcomes will be. Um, these implications, I think, um, are, are strong from the program. There's a lot to be learned that, that applies to across the country and I think will um, resonate to the future. The key, I think, being that converting short trips for the automobile to tra active transportation is realized in Minneapolis, and I think it's now being seen in other communities, and it's promising. Um, achieving these goals um, are not going to be easily achieved if we use a mobility metric for, uh, for success. We need to find better ways to quantify active transportation trips and not mileage. Um, and active transportation solutions are, are, are less about technical and funding, and they're more about political will and, and embracing change as a culture. So that brings me up, and I apologize for running a few minutes long. Thank you, Thank you Tony. That was very, very interesting. Um, I noticed in, in our schedule we double-booked the break and, uh, and this panel. So I am going to give about uh, five or ten minutes for questions. People would like any questions on any of these very important things? Yeah, why don't we go to email first, and then that, then you, sir. Debbie, I'm not sure this question is best directed to you, or maybe really to to Billy. But uh, does the book deal with your chapter, but the book more broadly with the issue of <clears throat> technologies applied to the internal combustion engine? Because it does seem to me, you know, we don't in terms of moving away from dependence as much, dependence on oil and transport, um, that we don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. And um, uh, the combination of price, even in an atmosphere of greater supplies of oil, particularly domestic or Western Hemisphere supplies of oil, uh, price, regulation, technology, um, offer an opportunity, and we're seeing it, which is of more efficient vehicles and, and therefore dramatic, not elimination to be sure, not beyond oil, but at least as much dependence on oil as we have had. And opportunities were really significant gains. And I'd be, does the book address those technological changes and the opportunities to drive them uh, or not? You should respond. I mean, I was just going to say the timing of the book was really interesting because when the BP spill happened in 2010, it was really at the very beginning. I mean, we hadn't really opened up our minds to fracking oil. And we were already taking Canadian bitumen, but the prices hadn't been that high for that long in the global, you know, for the global price of oil to, for companies to continue to invest there. Now to want to double and triple those amounts of, of the oil sands that are coming to us. So the book was kind of poised right on this precipice of change in the oil field. But Billy, maybe... Right. And to address your question directly, we have that issue 
in little bits and pieces in multiple chapters, but there's no single chapter that addresses that. And to me, that fits more into the sort of suite of opportunities for change. And I know that that's been a a, a real push to change the efficiency of automobiles, and I think it's an important element. In our book, we deal with it only in a slice in multiple chapters. We went 350 pages, uh, so we had a lot of different uh, authors who dealt with uh, issues in different ways, but it's wrapped into a broader context, so there's nothing directly in in the book that deals specifically with the whole chapter on that. There's no common thread or commonality in the variety or spread in the chapter. Well, no, and that's uh, that's where the three key themes come from. Basically, if you if you take the uh, the book as a whole, what you're looking at is modal choices. Uh, we look at transit, active transportation, electric vehicles, freight, a number of these sort of modal choices, and look at the opportunities that you have to decrease oil use in each one of those areas. And then from a policy perspective, we try and wrap that together to to look for opportunities for the future. So really, the opportunities for each chapter are that it gives you a really detailed snapshot of of what is going on in a particular sector. And that's an advantage. And then we wrap those pieces all together so that you get a a whole view of what's going on in uh, the transportation, transportation sector more broadly. Sure. Hi, a question uh, primarily to Mr. Hull, I guess. Uh, I think of Minneapolis as a somewhat atypical metropolitan area in terms of, uh, uh, you know, demographics and social economic uh, structure and that sort of thing. And uh, I guess this goes back to the comment that was made earlier about the choice of the uh, demonstration areas. Uh, they probably were not typical also in most respects, uh, although except in the going from big to small and so on. So is there a a basis. I mean, I always think of a lot of the obstacles as cultural to active transportation. Is did you do you have a basis for generalizing from that Minneapolis result uh, to the rest of the nation? Yeah, I would say, um, and I would agree with you that that Minneapolis is, is certainly unique in many ways. And, and I'm um, not originally from Minnesota, but I'm always keenly aware of not being from there. Um, and, and actually. <laughs> Uh, the, the pilot program itself, I, I got to say, I, I was really pleased to be a part and work on it, but I was also somewhat offended that we were going to answer a really large question by picking four discrete communities and dumping $25 million in each, which that that money over the course of the pilot program in the Twin Cities was 1% of transportation funding. Um, and, and I really felt it wasn't a way to representatively answer that question across communities. And in fact, I certainly think there are things about about culture change and about behavior change that can be gleaned that will transfer to other communities. Uh, but now I will say also that the Rails to Trails folks uh, who were actively working with us on, on measurement and, and, and telling the pilot story uh, were pushing before MAP21 that there needed to be a 50 community, sort of $50 million, something to really get out there and measure these impacts on, on a broader level uh, because it, they, they don't operate inside of a vacuum and there were so many in, individual things that happened across each of the community. It made it very difficult to pull specific things and says, yes, the program is having this impact. At the same time, there have been studies all across the country that show when you invest in facilities, you see more use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's at this point, it's, it's almost not a question of whether that's going to happen. It's, you've seen it in study after study after study. So count numbers show that across the country, and the Minneapolis experience fits with that. When you invest and you try to build a system, it has positive results. I like that idea of 50 million, 50 states. 
Yeah. It's still a good idea, isn't it, Kevin? <laughs> I don't think, yeah. I don't think that's going to pass under the sequester, unfortunately. Ma'am, the last question? And could you identify yourself, please? Sure, Ella Cho from Brookings. Um, my question is for Debbie. We have seen natural gas as a game changer in the energy world, and then you study a lot about alternative um, oil. I'm wondering what's your view and what do you think the prospect is in natural gas vehicles and in converting natural gas to gasoline? Thank you. So natural gas is really interesting. First of all, from a climate perspective, as you saw, methane is a major climate-forcing gas, and it's actually more potent than CO2, although it's shorter-lived than CO2. So it's not, an, it's not a climate solution, but compared to coal, which is often what gas is considered to, to replace in the power sector, it's a lot less CO2 than coal. And even when you factor the methane and if you handle it well, it could be really a, a, um, a promising move. In the transportation sector, though, it's compared to what? You know, compared to oil. I, in working in this field a long time and have written about this, I really think that if natural gas is going to displace some of the oil and transportation, it has to be selectively done and carefully done. Well, first of all, we're not going to change every gasoline station on the corner to make them CNG stations anytime soon. I don't really see it as a passenger vehicle source because that would require that type of replacement and it won't happen. And we already know it leaks very easily. So when you're handling it with a lot of people in a lot of places, that's almost an accident waiting to happen. I think the two places natural gas makes sense in transportation are heavy-duty trucks, LNG, and the diesel and the trucking part of transportation is growing at the largest rate globally, in the U.S. and globally. So that might make sense. And then in terms of generating electricity for electric vehicles. So the best place for natural gas in the light duty, the passenger vehicle sector, is in, I believe, electric vehicles. Anytime you can deal with natural gas in a centralized way, through trucking, it's more centrally fueled, or through power generation, we probably can learn to manage its, the issues that will arise. But the more that we spread it everywhere, it's such a small molecule under a lot of pressure, it's going to be a really big problem for climate change to make it, you know, a gasoline substitute. Okay. Um, uh, in uh, consideration of the next panel, I think we're going to wrap up here. We do have a little more time for the next panel, the policy one, uh, and I hope we get uh, a good roundtable going. But um, uh, I want to thank the panel on behalf of Carnegie and all these folks for excellent. And uh, I'll say at the end, too, we're also going to have the PowerPoints on our website uh, within a couple of days. So thank you very much. And we're going to have maybe just take a five-minute break while the new panel comes up. The restrooms are directly across the hall, coffee's uh, in the back, and uh, we'll get started in five minutes. Uh, just this past year, in, in August of uh, last year. So, well, it's great. It's, it's the first time I've gone into full private sector consulting, so it's really a whole lot of education. And it's kind of ramping up now because the, I'm actually living here very temporarily because I still live in Minneapolis. So, And I'm actually building to, to open an office in Minneapolis. So I've been sort of working here, getting sort of up to speed with the work we're doing. And, and now we've actually just hit the point where I hired a staff person in Minneapolis getting an office and it's, uh, but it's exciting because for the work I do um, there's no greater group of people uh, and working with Jennifer and the folks it's um, to me it's the top of what I can do okay yeah. are we supposed to go in certain spots good to see you are you Kevin I'm Kevin no
No, you can give me another one. I just remembered. Pardon me. Uh, who's your wife? Somebody um, So when I get back, do you have time for lunch? Oh, yeah, I saw that for you. Uh huh. I do want to talk to you about performance measurement from Kennedy for Given the time lag and what I was trying to do, I hope we get more into that pilot project. Yeah. Yeah, no. No, no, Billy called me on Monday. That's incredible. Performance measurement Given the current round, won't get any traction until 2016. Because that's when the feds will do it. You want to say just say minutes of opening ideas on what if I said, um, give one good idea or two good ideas? They're already ahead a lot of other patients. They're going to, you know, okay. Yeah, we do have one guy who wants to give a I wondered if uh, I was going to hand Tony one of these because I'm not sure if he's had the latest. Oh, good. Well, that's the next, of course, that's the other question. Uh, I'll have to send it to me. Just uh, did a study uh, uh, of the pilots uh, looking at using Tony's count data and just did the results in uh, out in active living research. We, we found that basically, we did it with Angie from uh, Harvard. We found that facilities, basically the, the primary factor in leading yeah, right. races in And we, we did everything that you're saying. Facilities. We, we sliced and diced things in every possible way that you can do it, the way you're supposed to do it. And facilities are the key. And so I'll send you that. Okay. But yeah, it, it shows exactly what you would want, exactly what you would expect, and it makes 
Okay. So David was just asking yeah. whether he, he, he had, first he asked whether he had slides and all, but then he said, do we have, a, uh, do we have open comments? I said, I don't have to, but I could. Right. You know, I mean, so he said, that's because, uh, you know, what the whole thing that they ought to address. Right. Is that what yeah, that's okay. fine. Now, is there any place this kind of this kind of stuff should go? Sure. Yeah, we can we can put it in the back. It's certainly work that needs to go. Yeah, I mean, this one's much fresher. Yeah, everybody's been talking about this today after Tony's comments. Yeah, this is older, but you know. Yeah, you mentioned. Okay, to you. Cool. No, I'll put them. I'll put them in the back with with that book. So yeah, and I'll have to I'll have to buy the book and get a get a. Autograph, so, eh? Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually have one, so we can sign it. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, he was, I actually don't know visually what he looked like. Uh, I know that he was, he was, he was supposed to be here, and, and there was a, I think he was running from one event to another, but I, I visually can't, uh, can't place it. Okay. Yeah. I just didn't know what I was supposed to be looking for. Right, right. And I don't have his phone number either. Okay. It doesn't Sorry for the late message. Not at all, not at all. It's nice to see you again. I have, I wrote down bullets. But. Oh, okay, okay. Right, Kevin, Kevin Meadows is stressed. Yeah. Well, we like should have worn t-shirts. Kevin, we know Kevin, too. Right, Some way of distinguishing dark. Yeah, but yeah, well, it's gotten darker. <laughs> so we've decided we're Kevin Meadows. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, compared to you, I guess. Okay, folks, let's get started. we got about an hour. This is your time. This is your time. Uh, while people are sitting, um, getting seated, a little advertisement. I've just been given, and I've, I've heard about it, but I haven't got a copy. You know, the National Research Council just came out. Let's see if I'm right for that. The National Research National Academy of Sciences, anyway, came out with... Um, a report this this uh, week uh, on, and here's Mr. Uh, in charge of it, uh, it's called uh, Transitions to Alternative Vehicles and Fuels, uh, about how we get off of oil in the transportation sector. Uh, the bottom line, I don't want to steal the, 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 uh, the thunder on this, but it's pretty impressive uh, argument that we can get just in this, uh, using alternative vehicles and fuels, forget about all this smart growth and, and trip choices and, and compact communities, you can get about 80% reduction in oil just from these technologies. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, pretty much. There's details. Read the book. Right. <laughs> Good. 
Uh, and, of, and of course, uh, you probably all heard about the president's um, proposal for a um, energy security trust, energy security trust, that would also be focused on investments, $2 billion in alternative uh, technologies and fuels for transportation. So this is a very timely uh, um, uh, topic. Um, with, this is uh, a kind of a free flow uh, conversation about uh, the possibilities of uh, policy change that would accelerate some of these, uh, these uh, initial strategies for getting off of oil in the transportation sector. We have three excellent um, uh, policy experts here sharing uh, on this panel. Uh, they, again, they are in uh, your handout, but uh, I will just introduce them briefly. Right on my right is Kevin Mills, Vice President for Policy at the Rails to Trails Conservancy. Uh, and uh, they've been very involved in promoting active transportation for a very long time. And we're very involved, of course, in the, uh, the pilot program that uh, Tony Hull talked about. Uh, then we have uh, Darren Lovas. Darren Lovas is from NRDC, and he is the transportation director at NRDC and has been on the executive committee of T4 America and is probably uh, the most um, eloquent and, uh, uh, and published uh, transportation policy guy if anybody has been following his blog on transportation. Best handsome. Right, and handsome. Oh, yes. <laughs> Dark. I think he's wanted to, to, to describe you as dark, Darren. Uh, and Kevin DeGood. Kevin is the um, Assistant Director of Policy at Transportation for America, uh, which is part of a triumvirate, as you know, of transportation reform groups, Transportation for America, Smart Growth America, and Reconnecting America. They're very pro-American over there. <laughs> uh, and... <laughs> <laughs> Who cares about the other countries? Uh, but we're going to start off. The, the one PowerPoint we have is Kevin. So Kevin, because he actually has a PowerPoint, right. he gets to go first, and then we're going to have an open discussion. Oh. Now, how do we? I've got a totally blank screen here. Does anybody exit? There you go. There you go. There you go. Is that it? I don't text. I don't Twitter. I don't Facebook. So. <laughs> All right, there we go. Uh, well, thank you for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be with all of you this afternoon. I wanted to try to use a couple of examples rather than just uh, lots of bullet points. So I thought I would start by talking about two major structural barriers, these all the way at the local level up to the federal level, that really impede the kind of game change that we want to see to move us off of oil and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So I thought I would start by this overhead view. This is actually where my parents live. It's right in Decatur, Georgia, across the line in Atlanta. And it's a 100-townhome community that was built in 1972. And as you can see, there is one point of entry and exit for all 100 of these homes. And a lot of the, what you see on the screen actually wasn't built. This was, this was farmland, ostensibly, when this first came about. But it doesn't connect to the surrounding street grid. Uh, the shops across the way have got a sidewalk for the first time in who knows how many decades. There's nothing on this side. And when my parents want to go across the street to eat pizza, they get in the car and they drive. 
And part of that is because you've got high speed moving traffic on La Vista, which is what they exit onto. You've got some pretty strong curves. You've got some elevation changes. And it's a nightmare to try to see anything. And there's no sidewalks for a couple hundred yards in either direction. So if you look over to the left, you've got a Walgreens. And if they want to get milk or prescription, they also have to drive to the Walgreens. So the, the lack of land use planning, the lack of foresight, the lack of transportation planning decades ago still binds over the decisions about how to move through urban space for my parents and all the other residents of this community. And it will continue to do so for decades to come. So when we get these things wrong, the long tail of consequences just stretches on and on and on. So that's what I wanted to start with, this notion of we need grassroots change, we need demand for something different, and we've got to start to get land use planning right at the local level. Uh, the second thing I wanted to touch on is the fact that we have a state-based program. And it's something that it's really easy to forget. The money that the federal government collects through the gas tax and truck tires and other things like that flows up to Washington, and then the supermajority of it goes back to states. So I chose North Carolina where I went to school, and I wanted to highlight that in 1989, as the interstate era was rapidly sort of coming to a close, they set out not just a traditional annual battle over a couple of bucks in the transportation budget. They really set out a vision that would guide investments in the state of North Carolina for decades. And they passed something called the Highway Trust Fund Law that had two specific purposes. One was to four-lane several thousand miles of state highway and to make other improvements about grade separations and cuts and you know interchanges and all that kind of stuff. And then the second one was to do a series of loops around anything that could be described as a major population center in the state. You can see all of them listed off to the right. And what you see here is that when a state planner looks at the map, they have a fundamentally different thought process than I think a lot of the folks in this room who we tend to focus on what mode do people choose when they walk out their front door? What are their mobility needs on a daily basis? So much of the travel that I do and most of us in this room do doesn't ever leave the metro region, doesn't ever leave that zone from your house to your job. And yet when a state planner thinks about what they want to do with hundreds if not billions of dollars they get from the federal government and their own state gas taxes, they see highway networks. And I'm willing to bet that when this law sort of reaches its natural conclusion, when all the last loop is built, when the last mile of four-lane road has been completed, there will be a subsequent bill, and they'll say, you know what? We've had a lot of population growth. We're now the 10th largest state in the nation in terms of population. These need to be six-lane roads. And in fact, some of these loops are congested. We need outer loops. So why don't we have a highway trust fund law 2.0? And that can be a real problem. So these are two structural things. One is local, and then one is federal. We pass the money down to states. Uh, so David asked me to talk about quickly four policy solutions. There are a lot. I chose four that we would really like to see in the next reauthorization. Uh, first and foremost, we would like to see strategic planning be mandatory for metropolitan regions, sometimes also called scenario planning. Uh, and then to have that be combined with some very progressive performance measures. When I say scenario planning, I mean too often transportation planning is something that's very linear. We have a project list. Some stuff didn't get done last year. We tacked a few things onto the top. Let's move forward. We're saying look at alternative land use development scenarios. Look at alternative bundles of projects, management approaches, IT, and then measure the performance of each of those alternative scenarios against a whole host of performance factors. These are just a couple. Right, per capita VMT, mode share, and throughput. Now, MAP21, for the first time ever, does include a little bit, and I stress a little bit, of performance measurement in it. 
but a lot of it is really low-hanging fruit. And by that I mean bridge condition, pavement condition. These things are important, but it's not the kind of thing that's going to move us forward. And the two areas where they have a little bit of daylight to do something good, that's national highway system performance and congestion, what we have started to hear from USDOT is that in all likelihood, these measures may actually move us in the wrong direction. We could actually see rulemakings come out at the end of this year in draft form that would penalize metropolitan regions that make balanced investments. Let me give you an example. Throughput, we want to count people and not cars. If USDOT were to promulgate a rulemaking that said, we're going to measure vehicle speeds, we're going to measure travel time index, we want to know how long does it take a vehicle to move through a particular corridor. If you're talking about an urban setting where you've got businesses, you've got turn lanes, you've got signalized roadway, we're not talking about the interstate, but the NHS system, you could very easily see a case where a city that wanted to add a bus rapid transit network, part of which might have dedicated right-of-way, part of which might move in mixed traffic flow, would actually see its scores go down, even as throughput went up, because buses do, sorry to say, slow down a lot of the cars around them. They make stops. They chew up travel lanes. They do a lot of things. They increase the overall performance. They lower our carbon footprint. They had economic development. There's a lot of good reasons why you want to invest in public transportation. But if you have the wrong performance measure, then you get penalizing jurisdictions who are doing the very things that we think are so important. Uh, number two, complete streets. Every year we kill more than 4,200 people who are pedestrians. People who use public transportation are pedestrians at the start and at the end of their trip. And people aren't going to use systems that they don't feel safe, that don't feel welcoming. So I've got a picture here of a complete street. We see we've got dedicated bike lanes, we've got bulb outs, we've got clearly marked crosswalks. This is the kind of facility that says people belong here too, not just cars. Where is that? Uh, I don't know. I stole that from one of our partners, <laughs> our complete streets. That's true. That is, that is very true. <laughs> I will keep that in mind the next time I do this. <laughs> uh, third is fix it first. We don't want to see us spending a lot of money building greenway facilities out at the edge of our urbanized areas when we have things that are crumbling. One quick statistic, we have more than 66,000 structurally deficient bridges in this country. We have tens of thousands of miles of deteriorating roadway. Anybody who's driven in the greater Detroit region knows that your car could just up and be swallowed at any given time by some of the potholes there. We don't want to see new things built when we can't take care of what we have. And then lastly, we want pretty robust metro devolution. What do I mean by that? Well, if we're going to make communities go through the hard work of doing scenario planning, and then they come up with a particular bundle of investments and land use strategies, we don't want that to collect dust because 94 cents of every dollar went to the state DOT and they said, yeah, we don't care because guess what? We're building urban loops. So get in line 30 years from now, maybe there'll be some money for that. What we want to say is if you do the work, we're going to put money behind it. I'm going to close with this. Um, this is a shot of downtown Norfolk before the light rail system uh, opened recently. And what we see here is pretty good urban density, but also a whole lot of parking. So much so that we've got parking on tops of buildings, we've got street lots. If we look towards the top of the frame, we've got a mall. You can see the entranceway there where you've got tons of underground parking for anybody who wants to come and shop. Um, and even though there's pretty good crosswalks, we don't see a whole lot of people out again. Um, because why would you? 
This is a downtown area that was clearly planned by planners who thought you were going to drive in in the morning and drive out. If I go from my sixth floor office and I take the elevator down to the basement and I get in my car, I'm not really worried about much what's outside. This is that very same area today. The light rail, they demoed that building. They put in this uh, pedestrian sort of greenway. You have a completely different orientation to the street, and you have an alternative way for you to get downtown from where you live in the Hampton Roads area. And this is something that is, that is safe and attractive. And we know that public transportation matters. If we look at some recent statistics put out by APTA, uh, I believe it was a year ago, 10.2 billion unlinked trips, saving a total of 4 billion gallons of gasoline and something like 37 million metric tons of CO2. So if we want people to do something different, we have to build them something different. And that goes all the way down to the local with things like complete streets and access, and it also involves major systems that we have to plan for. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Um, now, um, because these other two folks did not prepare a PowerPoint, they only get three minutes each. <laughs> Uh, to say uh, what they'd like to say about uh, policy going forward. And then what I'd like to do is to um, maybe ask one question but to the panel, but to anybody here who also wants to answer that question. And then we want to have an opportunity uh, for anybody here also to raise a question and anybody else in the room who wants to answer that question uh, raise their hand. Does that make sense? Because just, we're just trying to get a little uh, roundtable going rather than Back and forth this way, we're going to try to get it more. I wish we could have this all in a circle, but uh, uh, um, uh, we have a little bit too too many folks for that. But why don't we just get started? Kevin, why don't you just give two minutes? Sure. Yeah, I thought the standard, uh, Darren told me it was going to be showing up with the standard mm -hmm. for behavior here. But uh, so mm -hmm. as, as we look forward to uh, federal transportation policy, I, I want to put two things on the table to get us started. One is that uh, we really need to invest more dedicated federal dollars in active transportation. And the reason is it's the most cost-effective way to manage short trips. And many people are surprised to realize that after decades of sprawl in this country, that the short trip is still dominant. They have uh, half the trips in this country are within a relaxed 20-minute bicycle ride, three miles or less. Uh, over a quarter of the trips in this country are uh, within a 20-minute walk a mile or less, and yet 72% of those very short trips are, are driven by car or truck. So uh, th that's, that's the mainstream opportunity is to think about converting a portion of those short trips to walking and bicycling. So in 2008, we did a, an analysis. It's in a report called Active Transportation for America, which is available back there. And uh, so it's, it's uh, older, but, but basically we had uh, done a modest scenario where we found $10.4 billion in, uh, in benefits to the country of making uh, an investment in, in shifting some of those, uh, a modest number of those trips. And we have essentially uh, achieved about that level of, of mode share that we used for that modest scenario already. Um, and then there was a more substantial scenario that led to $66 billion a year in, in benefits. And this is just really looking at transportation, oil, climate change and public health. So, and there are other benefits. So, so uh, when Billy approached me about writing a chapter in this book, really was, it was thinking about, let's 
think through the lens of, of oil savings and projecting those analyses we had made out to, uh, to 2050, which was the premise of the book. And we looked at that and said, well, in that time frame, you could be on a, an improvement trajectory that's much more modest than what we've seen in recent years in moving towards active transportation. And you could still achieve, you, you'd essentially have an America that is not even up to the standards of today's Minneapolis. And you could be achieving um, savings of 6.5% of all the oil consumption of America's cars and light trucks. That's a very significant mid-range uh, solution. It's incredibly affordable, affordable, quick to implement, and has very rich co-benefits in terms of health, economy, and other things. So, so that's the first uh, piece is realizing that investment's really worth it and a federal priority. Second is that I would make a bid for safe routes to everywhere. That's really what Tony was talking about with the, with the pilot experiment, but we've got to take that to scale and be invested in saying that you, that you really need to have safe and convenient ways. You want to fill in the strategic gaps in the existing infrastructure we have so that, like with other transportation networks, you've got to build a system and you can take advantage of what you have, make those strategic investments, put the, knit it together with some concentrated investments to fill those gaps, and then you make it uh, safe and practical for people to get around by walking and bicycling. And, you, uh, and the, all the research shows that if you do that, they will, and that that's going to be a very big bang for your buck in terms of uh, shifting trips, saving oil, and achieving many other things that, uh, that we value as a nation. Darren, three minutes. All right. <laughs> uh, and I'll try not to be too dark. Uh, so, I, I, and I will say just three things. Uh, uh, first, um, uh, working on this leg of the stool, the rickety leg of the stool, as I think Debbie uh, called it, um, is um, tough but necessary. Um, the increasing performance standards for cars and trucks is comparably a simple policy lever to, to pull. And I, I was uh, involved with the advocacy for um, uh, the 2007 energy bill and then um, the advocacy for higher uh, fuel economy uh, and greenhouse gas performance standards for vehicles since then that the administration has adopted in two rulemakings, the most which, recent of which was last year and which will take us to about 54.5 miles per gallon for new light-duty vehicles by 2025. The administration is also working on standards for heavy-duty vehicles and medium-duty vehicles. All of that is going well, and frankly, that, as I say, is a relatively simple policy lever. It's a matter of, of uh, you know, the architecture has become more complicated uh, in a, a, pursuant to a National Academy of Sciences study that showed that it needed to become more complicated to become easier for the regulated to community to comply with it, but it's still about raising the average standard up to a certain level but in a certain time frame. Not a lot of variables. Uh, uh, when you shift to looking at this, this is about land use, it's about infrastructure, it's about pricing, it's about technology that improves the performance of specific types of transportation infrastructure, it's about different types of infrastructure within the infrastructure category, non-motorized transportation, which Kevin talked about, uh, also public transportation. So, and each one of these affects the other. So this is, a, a, this is, this is, it's like a chess match or multi-layered chess match compared to a checkers match that you see with CAFE, with fuel economy standards. And that's tough and that's difficult. And we need to tackle it because of what Debbie was talking about earlier. And this is something that NRDC also started looking at 
uh, say five or six years ago when we realized, oh, uh, we're producing almost a million barrels a day of oil from the Canadian tar sands, and that is likely to increase as we see higher oil price levels. And you saw the record $140 barrel uh, level hit in 2008. That's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you get reduction in demand and the redu reduction in pollution that comes with that. However, you also push technological frontiers and innovation frontiers, as Debbie was saying, and what's happening as a consequence is the fuel mix is becoming more carbon intensive over time. And I used to call this sort of a carbon drift. It's happening, I think, a little more quickly than that. So drift might, you know, the, the slowness that connotes might be deceptive. That's a real problem uh, because what we put into the tank as uh, 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 cars become more sippers rather than guzzlers becomes more carbon intensive over time. So we need to do something about travel activity as well. And unfortunately, to add another layer of complexity on top of this, we're going to get climate change. We're going to get substantial climate change in the future, no matter how much mitigation we do, because we failed to do enough mitigation up to this point. Consequently, we also need to prepare our uh, uh, built environment for climate change that's coming, especially in coastal areas and elsewhere. So climate preparedness is an additional uh, item that needs to be put into this complex mix of reforms that we need to achieve. So all of that is difficult. Um, and it's also necessary because of the changing fuel mix uh, and because of what's happening in terms of climate and what we need to prepare for. Um, and the, the thing is that um, after this last reauthorization, uh, I, I'm fairly well convinced that Congress, uh, at least in the foreseeable future, is incapable of reforming the transportation program. Um, it's just, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, it took them three years to pass a mediocre two-year statute. Um, uh, and um, it, there's not an appetite for more revenue. There's not appetite for more reform. So that means that local and federal, uh, I'm sorry, local and state reforms become even more important. And this, this actually adds to the difficulty of the task, and this is what I meant by being dark, but I think it's crucial. We need to figure out uh, uh, and target advocacy efforts and analytical efforts to get as much reform as possible uh, at the local and regional level especially and then have that scale up to the state and federal level and so it's going to be a longer game than we'd like which of course complicates the climate preparedness portion of the agenda but it's crucial we have to do it and we're going to have to plan for it uh, um, and get it done in the coming years. So how's that for dark? Thank you, Darren, for that <laughs> cheery outlook. Um, so let me get started here. And, and uh, uh, I really do want this. We have about a half an hour, and I'd like to get as much audience participation as possible. I, I suggest uh, I'm going to ask a question based on just what I heard here on this panel. Anybody wants to answer that question, not the panel, uh, uh, just raise your hand, and then you get to, uh, or somebody can get to ask a question, and then we'll go back here. Somehow we're going to figure this out. But uh, here's my question. For all three of these folks uh, uh, talked in, in different ways about performance metrics, uh, whether it's safety, uh, bikeability, a bunch of others. Um, if we had to pick one killer indicator of what a low-carbon, sustainable community transportation system output would be that would incorporate and require the, you know, the adoption of as many of these good ideas, uh, uh, what would that be? What would we want our, our, our local, state, and federal uh, officials to, to focus on 
as an outcome for our uh, transportation system. And just to give you and make it simple, open book, uh, Sweden has, this, has a, a specific performance metric of vision zero, zero fatalities from transportation by 2030, 2040. Now, they know they're not going to get there, but that incorporates, if you think about it, safety, uh, fatality. You have to slow the friction down between car, fast cars and slow cars. It has, a, it has a lot of outcomes besides just less fatalities. So um, something like that. Would anybody, I know this is a, a, a uh, quick quiz, what do you call them? You know, a spot quiz. Uh, yes, sir. You're very correct. I have no answer. Oh, we can't answer that. <laughs> that you, I have no answer to that, but I know Sweden somewhat. And I can tell you that if you do that, if Sweden uh, attempts to go that far, they'll increase the suicide rate, which is already unfortunate. Could you explain why? Why? Because when people are deprived and Swedes, the Swedes expect cradle-to-grave, uh, state participation in their life. But when it comes to restrictions on things that content them in the bleak climate and the conditions under which they live environmentally, that is from the heavens, uh, they get depressed and then, like in Norway, they commit suicide. Okay, I was just giving that as an example. I don't know being being deprived of, I think he of wins being on run dark. over. I think he wins on dark. You're number two. You're number two. Right. I, I mean, I'm sure you're deprived of being run over. I mean, uh, would anybody else like to to either make a comment about a killer app for uh, measuring success in these? Would anybody else like to have a... Well, yes, sir. Um, I would suggest that maybe how much gasoline they burn per capita in the district. Okay. Can we even measure that? We can, we can do that, can't we? Yeah, okay. sure. We can do that. Okay, who else would like to raise a question and back... Yes, sir. And would you please uh, identify yourself again? Uh, Randy Sim. Uh, my question is, I assume that the carbon footprint of Europeans, uh, the affluent parts of Europe, is at least in transportation and sort of related things, is much lower than in the United States, or significantly lower. And I assume that that's at least uh, due in part to their policies, like high fuel costs, that sort of thing, that impose significant restrictions on them. Um, why do you think that uh, Europeans are willing to tolerate these sorts of restrictions that seem in the United States to be uh, pretty unlikely? Uh, is it cultural, historical, or is it a difference in our political systems? Restrictions again, sir, on what? On, well, the, uh, policies that... I, I assume that their lower carbon footprint is, is largely attributable to their public policies, like the high cost of fuel, uh, the fact that they've imposed uh, tax, I believe, on air transportation... Uh, that sort of thing, uh, that they promote much denser development, uh, that they are willing to subsidize uh, transit, all those things. Right. So why do they tolerate much more prices, higher prices? Yeah, for, as for, compared to the United... Or is it just pricing or, you know, what is, right. what is behind that? Do we have any views? Uh, Can I first give the audience any... Uh, anybody want to answer that or offer a... So why is Europe 
they don't seem to worry about gas taxes like we do. In fact, you know, you don't even need in Germany. I know in Germany, the secretary or minister of finance can just decide what the gas tax is you know, uh, and issue an order. So uh, you don't even need to to, to get approval. Why? The question is, does it have any guidance for us? Yeah. Tony? Well, I, I don't think I would, first of all, assume that they are pleased or accepted. Uh, I think everybody in every society pretty much has complaints and rails against policies and everything that the electeds do. I, I think more about that, that it's not something that is new. Um, they've grown accustomed. The policy structures in most of the communities in Europe um, have sort of existed uh, uniformly, so they're, they're, it's not like all of a sudden they just jumped the cost of, of gasoline. It's always had a, a high premium and taxation on it. Um, so there's already, I guess, they've grown up accepting it, and it's fine. But at the same time, when you see the progressive policies, say, in like Copenhagen, where they've transformed from a car culture to bike culture, um, there was very much resistance. People um, were very upset, and, and it took a while. But then after it becomes pervasive and it becomes part of the culture, they start complaining about something else. <laughs> They're very dark. It's very, very dark <laughs> up there. Yes, ma'am. Can you identify yourself? Sure. I'm Shannon Baker Branstetter with Consumers Union. And I guess I would just say that I think that people don't feel like they're giving something up as much in Europe. I mean, certainly there's more tolerance for taxes in general but uh, over there. But I think that it's also, it is convenient to, you know, walk or to bike. And so when you make a transition and asking people to, you know, give something up, that's a lot harder for you to say, well, we're going to penalize you, you know, with uh, congestion pricing. That sounds like a penalty. It sounds like you're taking something away. Whereas, I think part of why smart growth has really taken off with, um, you know, the next generation is that um, people like you know being able to live near where they work and you know use capital bike share. And I think that they don't feel like they're giving anything up. Like, why would I want to get in a car and drive 45 minutes when I can walk down the street or you know hop on metro? So I think you know the best frame to look at how to sell it to the American public is to make these alternatives really attractive rather than penalizing them for something that they don't have they don't feel like they have very much control over. Over here. Um, some of the conversation that especially Identify the, yourself. Oh I'm sorry, I'm Tanya Snyder from Streets Blog. Um, uh, some of the conversation that we've had today about the increasing abundance of oil from the last panel, but also this one, um, is, is very alarming. And it, and it seems like it sort of goes along with the question about cost, um, that I feel like the, the reason that, that this kind of movement and conversation has gotten as far as it has in the public sphere is because of gas prices, that people are upset about gas prices, and that people have some concept of oil as a scarce commodity that's just going to get more expensive. And if that's not true anymore, I feel like we've lost everything, you know, and kind of that, that talking about climate change is not a winner. And, and the fact also that this newly abundant source of, of fuel is more toxic and more carbon intensive um, I, I feel I feel like that's the darkest thing that's come out of this. Actually, <laughs> worse than suicide in Sweden. You know? So, so I so I feel like I don't know where to go from there. Um, and I I'd like to kind of well, um, crowdsource. Just, 
Actually, just re real quickly, one, one dark thing, people are going to well, give you one, an one, one thing to clarify is, is in spite of the decreased scarcity, price is still a problem because because this is because of political science uh, among other things because this is still it's still a global marketplace that determines the price of oil and there is still a cartel that uh, it, whose countries depend on a lot of revenue um, uh, from oil sales in order to. Um, take care of a public that has become exceedingly dependent on subsidies for fuel and other, other goods and on jobs. I mean, this is the countries that still control enough of the oil to organize into a cartel and affect the global oil price want that, don't want that price to collapse. So realize that, and, you know, volatility is, is likely to be a, a problem also going into the future. So price has not been solved by the change in the scarcity um, Issue you have to really well high gas well, prices so, great. Well, it, it, I mean, you know, for, actually for fuel. Well, I mean, but this this shows why there's still a lot of interest in uh, in in uh, addressing our dependence on on oil. You know, because it's not just about how much of it we we have, but how much how much we pay for it and how predictable um, uh, that price level is. And and the the what's happened will change probably change some of the volatility might ease some of the price but you know there're going to be other forces like like political science forces that are going to push against that and aren't going to allow the price of oil to collapse so okay. I, I wouldn't mind adding in so uh, i mean i think th there's a variety of places from which pressure to to change you know can come from and if you're really you know looking at uh, you know Global oil market, or you know, North American oil, oil supply, and only through that lens, and maybe thinking about a congressional debate, then it's kind of easy to get in that mode of thinking, uh, you know, uh, in a dark way. Um, but uh, but I, I'd say my greatest optimism comes from flipping it over and looking at the community level and looking at transformations that are already underway in our country, and thinking that you know people people are driven by a lot of considerations that only being one of them but but, but you know you see dc it's a very different place from a a walking and biking standpoint than it was 15 years ago uh, you know i have been a bike commuter in this uh, town for over 20 years and it was a very you know lone pursuit you know basically urban combat you know 20 years ago and now it there's you know, nine, ten bicyclists pulling away from the same light at the same time, and there's and you survive long enough to survive <laughs> long enough to see it. But no, anyway, the point is that that came from from uh, you know that didn't come from Congress. That came from the the bottom up and people you know trying to say what kind of community do we want to live in? I feel healthier. It's more affordable. You know, just all of the you know making the case benefits there. That rich set of co benefits is driving change at the community level, and I th I, th I think ultimately there's going to be. You know, our, our national politics are odd and they don't always reflect, you know, the, these changes in society. But I think, you know, ultimately um, that'll, that'll bubble up. And, and so I don't think oil is the only lens through which we should look at whether some of these changes in behavior and technology will occur. So Carnegie has a very sunny answer to your question, Tanya, which I will be, take the opportunity to present here for people's consideration, which is um, obviously if we have more oil and the price does go down, the way to manage it is to, to price it. We need a very strong price signal, not only for the externalities, but for the behavior change. Um, now, how do you do that? Because nobody likes pr gas taxes or uh, our pricing. Our proposal is that you only price gasoline on the way down as the price of oil is going down. So you pick a price point, let's say $90 a barrel, 
And if the price of oil goes up, you start abating the gas tax to dampen the impact of oil. It comes back to $90 a barrel. If it goes below $90 a barrel, you start increasing the gas tax. And because for every barrel uh, of oil, $1 difference is supposedly translates 2.5 cents at the pump, just add a penny to the gas tax for every dollar it goes before the trigger, you know, below the trigger price. The price of gasoline is still going down 1.5 cents, but you've added a penny to the gas tax, which is $1.6 billion. So, um, uh, so price on the way down, uh, abate on the way up, and you can always, as, it get, as people tolerate more, you can put the trigger point further and further higher. So it's more of a gas. Anyway, that's our idea. It's a very cheery idea. You can price oil, and it won't hurt the consumer uh, because it's going to be applied on the way down. Anybody want another point from the from the book? Jeff Kenworthy these surveys cities all across the globe and finds. In, in the book, Jeff Kenworthy surveys cities all across the globe and finds uh, positive trends in multiple cities. Uh, just the type of stuff that Kevin was talking about there, where cities are, are doing things for their own sort of benefits to create better communities, and you're starting to see those, uh, those trends pay off in terms of sustainability indicators. So there is hope out there. Uh, we have an opportunity to change, and uh, metro areas in the United States and across the globe are doing that, and uh, Jeff Kenworthy surveys that in the book. I just feel like a lot of the reasons that communities are investing in that is is this sort of feeling like, you know, transportation costs and, you know, this kind of unsustainability of, you know, partly economic unsustainability of being dependent on oil. And, you know, our community is going to keep doing things like that if there's not this kind of economic reason. But there is still an economic reason. Price it if it goes down, so we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, and prices, like I said, I, I don't think prices are going to drop. I, you know, I, I don't want to predict any particular price level. Uh, getting killed, but yeah. In the let's let's have a look in the back of the room. Uh, sir, identify yourself. Uh, Trip Pollard with the Southern Environmental Law Center. Hi, oh, Trip. Hey, how are you, David? There are a number of great points here. I agree with you about the importance of pricing. I think that's absolutely critical, and I do like your proposal because I think it it helps both send better price signals and it helps with the stability, price stability issue. Um, I agree with Darren about the political limitations on how much we're going to see the price of oil drop, but I also think an important other part to keep in mind is the resource itself. Part of the reason why there, as earlier panelists mentioned, why there's this additional flood of oil is because the price has been so high, it's justified extraction mechanisms that are much, much more expensive. So that's going to make it hard to drop the price of oil, but so far, because the price of exploration is going up. As I would point out also, is the decline on energy return on investment. And I think that's an important point. Several people have mentioned the shift in the types of hydrocarbons we're extracting. The bang for the buck from those hydrocarbons is much less in terms of dollar in, energy units out. And I think that's another important factor to keep in mind. It's going to impact and shape the price. Um, also on topic of, of big things shaping, uh, I, I like the positive examples. I think we are seeing a lot of change. It's not just oil price. I, I would point to a lot of the success we've had in promoting alternative forms of transportation isn't oil price per se, although that is a factor. It's much more the fiscal cost to taxpayers of our current transportation system. Mm -hmm. The tremendous cost of an asphalt-based 
approach to transportation and trying to maintain as well as keep that system going uh, has, to my mind, led as much if not more than price considerations to actually the progress that we are seeing. One other final point I'll just make big picture is also I would add to the mix the demographic changes that we're seeing. I think that's another enormous driver that is not going to wane and will be continuing a, a, a force for better transportation and land use. Uh, I, the demographic and fiscal constraint drivers are really key. The thing is that what we learned from this past bill, and this is where people like you, Tanya, play an especially important role here, um, and anyone who does advocacy or communications, is there's an immunity to change, to quote the title of a recent book about problems with organizational change in the transportation sector. Uh, in the final, final analysis, the Federal Transportation Bill was written largely to please the um, American Association of State Highway and Transportation uh, Officials, or AASHTO, which represents the state DOTs. Um, and we, we hit over and over on the points that this is where things are going, these are great models of success, you should really fund more of them, et cetera, et cetera. And it's... It, the immunity or resistance to that new way of thinking is very difficult to surmount, and it requires a lot of pressure and a lot of persistence. And actually, I have a, an example within our institution of uh, one of our senior managers used to work for a very, um, and this is a rare species nowadays, uh, a moderate to liberal Republican, um, for a long time in the House. And we sat down recently and talked about the difficulties with reforming the transportation program. And he looked at me and said, well, that's because, you know, everyone loves driving and, you know, just wants to drive everywhere. So, you know, what are you going to do? So, and then I looked at him and realized, okay, you're one of us <laughs> who realizes or should realize that that's not necessarily the case based on changing trend lines and based on demographic and fiscal constraint factors and all these other good things we're talking about. But that's not where, you know, he had this model for what the world should be. And he, I think, is the norm at, at the heads of these agencies in Congress uh, and all too often in public office. And what that means is, you know, there needs to be a lot of, it can't just be about pointing to success stories and, you know, uh, uh, assuming the facts will set people free because people are resistant to realize, to seeing what's happening and what needs to happen in terms of policy change and uh we really need to push hard and I think be harder line in terms of our advocacy. And there needs to be a lot more communication about, you know, where things need to be headed. That the next 50 years are going to be very different and need to be very different policy-wise from the last 50 years. Um, and I've heard, you know, I even heard the head of Ashto say that. But he doesn't really mean it. <laughs> I mean, this, this is, you know, there's, there's rhetoric Occasionally, good rhetoric on the other side, but there's not. I don't. I think there's an immunity to to really like really changing policy, and there we need a lot more pressure. So, so I, I think how quick people are to see some of these cultural changes though depends on on where they live. But just take, take D.C. again. So, 37 percent of households in D.C. don't have access to a car, and some of that's poverty, and some of that's choice. But an interesting substory of that is when they were redeveloping Columbia Heights. It was at the beginning. It was 60% uh, of households didn't have access to a car in Columbia Heights. And when they were done with gentrification of Columbia Heights, it was 67%. So there are a lot of people who are choosing, not just can't afford 
the car, and uh, and and they see they see their you know quality of life is as higher as you know as compared to other situations in which they could could live. So uh, I, I think there's something to mind there, and that's where my optimism comes from. Anybody would like to raise a question for the group, uh, sir? Name again? I forgot your name. Uh, Alan Crane, National Research Council. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of those people probably have Zipcar access, uh, yep. which may not reduce your VMT, but it does reduce parking problems. Yeah. yeah um, well, let me make yeah, a, a further point. Uh, the report that David showed you recently is available online. I left some report briefs out on the table. Uh, you're welcome to take that or contact me if you need help downloading it. Uh, I'd also like to address the issue of the... Uh, I'm in favor of a lot of walking and biking. I think there are a lot of good reasons to support that. But in the spirit of being provocative, I'm not sure that climate change is one of them. And my thinking on that is that if we're serious about climate change, there are going to be a lot of electric vehicles. And our conclusion in the report was that battery vehicles are basically going to be urban vehicles. We don't see the battery being developed that would permit it to be an all-purpose car that people use everywhere. Therefore, when you discourage driving in the city and and replace it with walking and biking. You're replacing kilowatt hours, not gallons of gasoline. And since we're serious about climate change, we've also decarbonized the electric grid because it doesn't make sense to decarbonize transportation if you're not doing the grid. And therefore, the savings on carbon may be uh, quite limited. Thank you. In the sector, or just because of these alternative strategies? Because, I mean, if 70% of oil oil is in the transportation sector, um, are you saying that that the relative carbon impact of of more choices or compact development is not going to provide these things because everything's going to be electrified or alternative fuel vehicles? We think there are going to be a lot of alternative... uh, fuels, whether it's electricity or biofuels or hydrogen. Um, It's just the point that I think we may be doing some double counting if we say that there's going to be a lot of saving because of more walking, that you're saving kilowatt hours, not gallons. That's all. Yeah. I I would submit it's it's perilous to put all of our eggs in in those baskets. Uh, There's a... um, you know the fueling infrastructure in this country is is ubiquitous and huge. Um, it's it's a tremendous undertaking. It takes many decades to turn over the existing fleet of vehicles and to think about whether we would make the massive trillions of dollars of investment it would take to make that wholesale change in the infrastructure. In the meantime, some of these other strategies are things that uh, can can come into play very very soon. So, um, okay, we, David, all, we need all those, Kevin. I just wanted to throw one thing out. We've had a lot of conversation about technology and the role that will play and the different things that are moving forward, and I think it's hugely important, and that there's a daunting task about oil. But I wanted to throw out, um, to paraphrase somebody who's controversial, uh, many of you have heard of Van Jones, and there's something that he said years ago that really stuck with me, and I think it captures a lot of what's facing us. He said, if all we were to do with all of our technological prowess is to take a gas-powered chainsaw that's cutting down a rainforest and replace it with a solar-powered chainsaw that's cutting down a rainforest. We haven't gained that much. And I think as we think about transportation and we think about our urban environment and if we think about population growth, 
as enormously important as it is to reduce our carbon footprint because of the long-term impacts of global warming, sustainability is bigger and even more complicated than that. Because even if you woke up tomorrow and everybody had an all-electric car or a hybrid or, or hydrogen or whatever technology, choose your silver bullet that you think is the best of what's available now. If we add another 100 million people by 2050, and then we add another 100 or 150 million people in the 40 to 50 years after that, if we were to continue apace the amount of green space that we would be taking up with the type of development pattern that we have today is simply untenable. So it's not just a question of energy consumption and pollution. It's a question about physically how much space do we take up, and in the space that we take up, how much do we consume, and what is that consumption? What damage does it do? Yeah, um, boy, Van Jones can turn a phrase. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, uh, we, we, I mean, we, I, I'm looking forward to looking at your report, and we've of course crunched the numbers also on the wedges necessary to achieve uh, uh, carbon emission reduction sufficient to avoid the two uh, degree threshold that um, scientists say is problematic uh, moving forward, and. Our numbers show that uh, um, even with a lot of electrification, even with a substantial amount of biofuels, even with a lot of efficiency, um, even with decarbonization of the grid, we still need to do more. And that assumes that we're going to decarbonize the grid, which I think is the biggest assumption that you made in terms of what you what you just said, which to my surprise seems to be uh, um, a bigger challenge than uh, increasing fuel efficiency. I mean, if you had told me 10 years ago that... <laughs> We'd be ratcheting up fuel efficiency standards at the rate that we are, but we wouldn't have made a lot of progress in decarbonizing the grid. Although there is, you know, there's substantial good things happening uh, thanks to state policies and thanks to uh, what's happening in the marketplace with natural gas uh, prices. But, you know, I, I, would, I would have looked at you and said you're crazy a decade ago. And we've, we've made a lot of progress, but we, we're still, there's still so, mo so far to go on cleaning up the grid. And okay. So that's, you know. Thank you. We're going to let one more question, and then I'm going to end with a cheery uh, uh, wrap-up. So everybody <laughs> leaves here smiling. A cheery wrap-up. That lady right here, did you... Thanks. Hi, I'm M. Mesnikoff. I was actually going to more respond to his point, but I think the panelists made a lot of those points, which is okay. electric vehicles will help. And if everyone, you know, if people drove them, that would reduce emissions and it could affect your equation. But again, the infrastructure that you need to support the cars, the parking, and everything else doesn't, doesn't get solved by electric vehicles. Those problems still exist. And I think what we're also seeing, maybe some other people have made this point, is that, I mean, cities are now competing to draw, you know, the, the smart, intelligent, young employees that they need to do that. They're getting bike shares. I mean, bike shares are going like crazy across the country because people want an option, and they, they want an alternative, and that's becoming the mark of, of a good place to go for employers and, and for employees. I mean, people are competing to make their cities more livable and more attractive for biking and walking, and I think that's, you know, addresses some of the concerns about, you know, whether we have a an abundance of dirty fuels or, or oil and whether that will bring prices down or not. I think people are now, particularly younger people, are more sensitized to not wanting, whether it's an electric car or not, they don't want to have to drive everywhere. And they also have other ways of being connected. They'd rather be on a tablet or an iPad or what have you than, than tied to a car. I mean, driverless cars may present more of a challenge if people suddenly can get in their car and sit and look at their 
movie and the car will take them where they need to go. You know, those will create other challenges. But I think we're just at such a point where people want other options, but I think there are complicating factors, some of which Darren pointed out in terms of housing costs and education and things that will keep people in communities that are livable and walkable that need to be addressed in order to actually get a comprehensive system in which people can afford to live in those kinds of places and have access to the you know, systems or the, the services they need to do that. Okay. Thanks, Ann. Uh, I think, uh, thank you for coming. I'm going to end up with this one cheery note. This is kind of a historical uh, story. Back in 1990, when we had completed the interstate system and we declared it, uh, the, the, the question was, what was the next, the future of the federal program? And maybe some of the folks are uh, old enough to remember this. The, the, this was the George Bush one uh, era. And we were all uh, a group of, envir- uh, of transportation activists were uh, assembled or called to the White House to unveil uh, the new uh, idea for transportation policy going forward. Uh, and the chief of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, was there. Uh, and um, uh, President Bush came out and he unveiled it. It was, well, we've had an interstate system one. We're going to have build interstate two. We're going to take all 150,000 miles that are like primary roads and we're going to make them all interstate standard roads. So we're going to go from 44,000 to 150,000 interstate standard highways. And there was a big map around there and it was all going all, all over the place. And Senator Moynihan was first guy. You know, the president says, yes, you know, Senator. Senator Moynihan gets up and takes off his glasses and he goes up to the map and he taps this line that goes from the east side of Texas to the west side of Texas. He says, Mr. President, you're from Texas. Would you tell me where this map goes? What towns are along that road? And the president had to say, well, you know, this is kind of like, you know, a concept map. It isn't actually a a real map. And so um, the result was uh, uh, Moynihan passed a bill, ICT, that had no more interstate highways. It created a system, but it was not an interstate system. The cheery part of that is, if you, if you don't like what you got, think what it could be <laughs> if we had gone with what the administration proposal was for transportation policy going forward in 1991. And I think we're at least halfway home already. So let's uh, look positive, and we're ready for the last last leg. Thank you for coming and listening to us.